Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com the African-Centered Encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com uh, Of that former time, all that was left were fleeting glimpses visible only to someone who paid very close attention. Not long before she moved out of the county, Lewis remembered she was walking up to a friend's front door and noticed faint inscriptions in the stepping stones that led up to the house. It was only when she knelt down for a closer look that Lewis realized the path she'd been walking was paved with remnants of black forsyth. They were gravestones, she said, from a black cemetery. Someone had dug them up and took them home and used them for flagstones. What is the significance of this passage to you, Mr. Phillips? Well, you know, it's a shocking image. And this is this was a glimpse from the county during what I describe as a kind of Rip Van Winkle sleep, because, you know, there's the, there are all the headlines that were made in, there's, in 1912. There are the headlines that are made from the initial event from from the communal expulsion of this community. And then in 1987, there are headlines because of a, a recurrence of that kind of mob violence that gets the attention of all of the major networks and CNN and all of these national news outlets. In between those two events to the outside world, um, Forsyth is largely invisible and largely overlooked. And it, it's a very, you know, at, at the time, it was a very out of the way kind of back, backwater place. And so, you know, it was very, very difficult to find out what Forsyth County was like in the 1930s and 1940s in terms of race relations. And the reason for that is that it's a place with only one race. It is it is a place where you know there were many communities where this kind of expulsion was attempted and there were some where it succeeded, but Forsyth County is really extraordinary for having succeeded in expelling the entire black community and succeeded in having kept anyone from violating that racial ban for 80 years. So the part in the middle there, these, this long sleep of forgetfulness 
in the decades between, you know, the end of the First World War and the 1980s was something I was very interested in. But I was also really um, it was very difficult to find uh, a point of view on all of that that was not from within the culture of the white supremacy in the county. And so this this passage you just read quotes from the account of Helen Matthews Lewis, who was a white woman who moved there as a young girl, not unlike when I moved there as a school child. And her father did not agree with, with the racial codes of the county. And so she had a little bit of an outsider's perspective on it. And she went on to become a sociologist who wrote a lot about Appalachia. And so she gave this account very late in her life of being a high schooler and walking up to the house of a friend and looking down and realizing that the paving stones she was walking on had inscriptions on them. And when she knelt down, she saw that they were gravestones taken from a black cemetery. And, you know, I found that image incredibly disturbing and haunting and it implies a really horrific, not that not just had this community been expelled, but then the, that the graveyard is desecrated and that someone who's desecrated the graveyard turns these gravestones into stepping stones. So, um, as an image for the attitude of the descendants of that first generation of night riders and vigilantes, you know, I thought it was incredibly um, telling and, and, you know, horrifying. But, you know, that's really the reason for that focus is it's one of the rare glimpses from inside the county during those periods that tells us anything about how these events were regarded one generation later. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, May 23rd, 2019. So I have been told this is our 12th study session on James Lowen's Sundown Towns, A Hidden Dimension of American Racism. Uh, the audio segment that you heard at the beginning that was suspected racist Patrick Phillips. Uh, he was a guest on the program in 2016. Uh, we discussed his book, Blood at the Root, uh, which is specifically focused on Forsyth County, Georgia, uh, the terrorist white terrorist lynching in Forsyth County, Georgia, uh, and the subsequent purge of all of the black residents, approximately uh, 1000 black people forcibly, violently ejected uh, from Forsyth County. And then for decades, uh, through violence and terrorism, maintaining an all-white town, uh, he gave a lot of interesting information uh, in the book and on the program. That same uh, metaphor, the Rip Van Winkle sleep, I'm not exactly sure how a white person, racist, can be quote-unquote sleep if they are desecrating and robbing black cemeteries to use the tombstones as a footpath. Were they sleepwalking when they raided the cemetery? That's what I mean. You see the, the common way that whites, in my view, obfuscate practice racism, even with the terms. And that's been a major theme as we've been reading Mr. Lowen's book, but did think that was important. Uh, there's another line that I'll try to share from blood at the root. That is Patrick Phillips book, but Similar themes uh, in both of the texts. We will go ahead and get started. Sundown Towns, Context of White Supremacy, audio segment number one. Athletic Contests in Sundown Towns. 
In many small towns, high school athletic contests are portentous. Usually, a basketball or football game draws more people than any other event of the week. Often, the game then becomes the main topic of conversation during the next week. The contests are important symbolically as well. Unfortunately, racist mascots are only part of the problem of white misbehavior when players and fans from interracial schools visit sundown towns. Such visits take place under a double cloud of otherness. A town already forms an in-group vis-a-vis the next town. In high school athletic contests, this antagonism usually has a light-hearted cast. Cheers like Smash the Tigers aren't meant literally, of course, but when a town is all white on purpose, the sense of being the racial in-group as well lends a special edge to the contest. A black graduate of Manuel, Peoria's most interracial high school, said that when her alma mater plays Pekin, downstate Illinois' largest sundown town, something racial is definitely going on. A 2001 white graduate of Manuel agreed. There's a special atmosphere when Manuel plays Pekin. Lots is at stake. Whole buses of students go to protect the team. On occasion, the team has needed protection. In 1975, for example, according to Randy Whitman, a manual student at the time, as the team was leaving Pekin, bottles, bricks, and all other kind of debris started pelting the bus. Fans of interracial high school teams near other sundown towns say the same thing. They take a busload of people to protect their team in what they surmise is likely to be a hostile environment. Administrators and coaches from interracial schools caution their fans and team members to stay in groups and exhibit extreme decorum when they play schools in sundown towns. Supporting the cheerleaders becomes an issue, too, especially if they cheer black. Blacks and whites tend to engage in two quite different styles of cheerleading, each of which can appear laughable to the other. In overwhelmingly white environments, black cheerleaders can face ridicule, even without the racist catcalls that sometimes emanate from fans in a sundown town. When Meadowbrook High School, a majority white but integrated school southwest of Richmond, Virginia, played Colonial Heights, known informally as Colonial Whites, the Meadowbrook cheerleading coach recruited extra chaperones to accompany them to help students deal with the racism they routinely experienced there. Interracial towns and teams need not include a high proportion of African Americans to draw the ire of fans and players in sundown towns. Cleveland, Oklahoma, has a big football rivalry with Hominy, the next town north. According to a 1985 graduate of Hominy High School, that game was always well attended, even when both teams stank. The story I heard 
was that the racial difference between Cleveland and Hominy was so great that Cleveland used to call their rivals the Hominy Coons. In 1990, Hominy had 76 African Americans among 2,342 residents, just 3%. But that looked very black from the vantage point of Cleveland, which had just eight African Americans and no black households among its 3,156 residents, or 0.2%. In a sundown town, emphasizing even the few blacks among an opponent's student body or team can provide a unifying rhetoric for the in-group. Fans in sundown towns commonly use racial slurs. Across America, Coaches and principals from interracial high schools caution their players and fans not to react. They know that racial slurs have often led to more serious altercations. In the 1960s, all-white Cedar Cliff High School in Lemoyne, Pennsylvania, across the river from Harrisburg, played football against Harrisburg's majority black John Harris High School. According to a high school teacher in the area, riots occurred every time the game was on the white shore. Clearly, more than good-natured rivalries are involved. Fans in some sundown towns seem affronted that African Americans dare to play in their town. Kay Collins attended Rabin Gap Nakuchi High School in the northeast corner of Georgia in 1972 and 73. We had a black basketball player on our team, and threats were made against him when we played in Towns County. That was the first time I heard that black people shouldn't be in Towns County after dark. The death threats were made days before the game, but according to Collins, nothing happened. Our team trounced them. In the 1990s, whites burned crosses in Dale, Indiana, when a majority black team from Evansville played there, a high school teacher from the area reported. An African-American member of the Danville, Kentucky football team remembered repeated outrageous fan behavior at Corbin, Kentucky in the early 1970s. They would cut the bus tires and the car tires especially if we were winning. Corbin is the scene of the only film ever made about a sundown town, Robbie Heeson's documentary Trouble Behind. In it, an African-American former football player in a nearby town says in 1990, We went in there to play. We were scared to death. When we'd come out, we'd get rocked. They'd throw rocks at your buses. They'd throw big cinder blocks. We had a couple of times where they'd throw through the complete windshield, and we had to drive back one night. This is when I was a sophomore, and this is a basketball game, and they crashed the whole front window, and we had to drive home without it. Later in the documentary, Heeson films the school superintendent in Corbin saying, it's a good place to rear our children. It isn't just fans who misbehave. Often players, and even officials, act up as well. 
Carroll, an interracial town at the southern tip of Illinois, played for the regional basketball championship in Anna in 1987. The Carroll Pilots, all black except their coach and one player, led by 15 points at the half. Thereafter, every call seemed to favor the hometown Wildcats of Anna Jonesboro, according to two Washington Post reporters at the game. Referees called 24 fouls on Carroll and just eight on Anna Jonesboro. Late in the game, a Carroll player struck back after being elbowed by an Anna guard, and a near riot ensued. We go through this all the time, said Bill Chumbler, the Carroll coach. There are no black referees down here, and we know that if it's close near the end, they're going to take it away from us. Interracial schools have to take measures to shield their black teammates and cheerleaders from harm in some sundown towns. Football and basketball teams in interracial high schools in Evansville, in southwestern Indiana, have a tradition of playing away games at Jasper, Indiana, earlier in the day than usual, according to a man who practiced taught in Evansville in 2001. The reason? It was still commonly understood that for the safety of the student-athletes of color and their parents, the team needed to be out of Jasper before dark, or as close to it as possible. A 1995 graduate of interracial Carbondale High School in southern Illinois said their wrestling coach warned them to protect their African-American players on and off the mat when competing at West Frankfurt, a sundown town 20 miles northeast. Athletes in Sullivan, Missouri, were so racist that some coaches chose not to risk letting their African-American players play, according to a nearby resident. Some local context. It was only about nine years ago that the sign outside of the town of Sullivan, Missouri, a stronghold of the KKK in Missouri and about 30 miles from where I live, was removed. It stated simply, Nigger, don't let the sun set on you in Sullivan. I have friends who live there who've told me of things that they've seen themselves there. My daughter married a man who was born and raised there and has told us that the town fathers, bank president, mayor, and other officials are all known to be members and leaders of the local KKK chapter. When my son was in high school and played football, the black kids were always benched when they played in Sullivan. It wasn't out of discrimination against them, but to protect them from injury. Over the years, the coach had too many black players hurt there, and hurt in ways that couldn't be proven were intentional, but appeared to be so. He felt he couldn't risk it anymore. The parents went along. This tradition of racism at athletic contests also besets sundown suburbs, where it has sometimes drawn coverage from major city daily newspapers. The New York Times ran a story on Connecticut's 1999 state championship football game between Darien, a sundown suburb, 
and Weaver High School in North Hartford, where the majority of students are black and Hispanic. After game, aftertaste of racial slurs lingers, was the headline. Weaver won 69 to 26. In the hearts of many Weaver players, however, the sweetness of victory mingled with the sting of racism, according to the Times. As the game wore on and the score became more lopsided, members of the Weaver team, all of whom are black or Hispanic, said they heard a number of crude racial epithets hurled at them by Darien's all-white team. Players from Darien, one of the richest suburbs of New York City, also hurled class insults after a Weaver touchdown. It's okay. In five years you'll be working for me. Some Darien players charged that Weaver players had also used racial slurs, and the teams did get together for a constructive session at Weaver later. If the Darien team had included black players, it's unlikely that its white players would have used nigger. And if Darien were integrated on social class lines, it would be equally unthinkable that some team members would taunt opposing players for being poor. Racist language and behavior by athletes and fans began as early as middle school in some sundown towns. Some situations have grown so tense that interracial middle schools have canceled all future games with sundown schools. Usually this bad behavior takes place at the school in the sundown town. Less often do sundown fans yell racial slurs when they're the visitors in the minority. Occasionally, students in interracial schools engage in belligerent behavior at their home games, aimed at the all-white outsiders. Darla Kraft wrote of being a cheerleader of all-white Heron Junior High School in southern Illinois in 1969-1970. We had a basketball game in Mount Vernon, where there was racial unrest. As we left the game, we were jumped by a group of African-American girls. I ran, so I wasn't hurt but a couple of the girls were pretty banged up. Around that time, according to a graduate of Pinckneyville High School, a few miles northwest, the two or three times we played football or basketball against Sparta or Duquoin, nearby interracial towns, every year there were always melees bordering on race riots. I recall hearing of one game at Sparta at which all of our bus's windows were broken out and riot police were called in from Carbondale to settle things down. I remember this period of militance in black culture between 1969 and about 1972, but the danger of what might be called white racial paranoia also lurks. The Sparta-Pinckneyville fracas may not have been exactly a race riot, considering that Sparta was at the time just 15% black. Surely white Sparta students had to have participated. Perhaps it was primarily an interscholastic melee with racial overtones. The Talk in Sundown Towns
The foregoing account of bad behavior at athletic contests in sundown towns isn't the whole story. Many sundown towns have repeatedly hosted interracial teams and their fans without incident. However, that's partly because the visitors chose to overlook the verbal racism they encounter. Even when on their best behavior, many residents of sundown towns routinely say nigger. Indeed, another privilege all white towns confer on their inhabitants is the license to say anything they want about people of color. Perhaps the first thing noticed by visitors to independent sundown towns is their overt verbal racism. During my thirteen years of public schooling in interracial Decatur, Illinois, ending in 1960, I never once heard the word nigger in school, on the playground, or said by one of my peers anywhere. But in sundown towns all around Decatur and all across America, the word was in common parlance then and remains the term of choice today. One of the most profound effects of sundown towns is on white rhetoric, on how people in them talk, especially on how they talk about race and about black people. In 2001, I had a pleasant conversation with a seventy-year-old white woman in Sheridan, Arkansas. A year or so earlier, the first African-American family to move into Sheridan, since blacks were evicted four decades earlier, joined her church, Landmark Baptist, the town's most prominent. She favored their membership and said, Our pastor, I have to hand it to him. He was young, but he knew what to do. He counseled with the nigger family, so then the niggers knew what they were getting into, and it all worked out. This woman didn't mean nigger maliciously. She seemed happy that the family had stayed. She was just thoughtlessly using the term she'd heard and used all her life. Her sundown town, fifty years behind the times, encouraged that lack of thought. Many sundown town residents are oblivious to other signs of progress in race relations. In 1993, half the class in Highland High School, a sundown town in Illinois east of St. Louis, thought interracial marriage was still illegal, according to a woman who graduated that year. One of the chief ways that white Americans have progressed in racial conduct in the fifty years since the 1954 Supreme Court school desegregation decision is in their rhetoric. Words may be shallow, the change may only lie on the surface, but surfaces do matter. People typically relate to each other on the surface, after all. Surface surely matters to African Americans who take deep offense at whites' use of nigger. For that matter, civilized rhetoric is a first step toward civilized behavior. The Civil Rights Movement initiated half a century of conflict and change that has proven difficult but humanizing. Sundown towns have deliberately sidestepped this adventure in healing 
through which we are still working our way. Sheridan itself went sundown in 1954, in direct response to Brown. Not just in speech, but also on paper, sundown town residents offend. While they don't write nigger, authors typically use negro, often uncapitalized, or the still more ancient colored people, even in works intended as serious history and written as late as the 1980s and 1990s. The rest of America left these terms behind decades ago in favor of black and African American. Writers in independent sundown towns simply haven't bothered to keep up with this progression. When they quote the occasional African American permitted to live in their town as exceptions, often they use dialect. Ralph Ray, for example, historian of Boone County, Arkansas, quotes Electa Smith, allowed to remain after the expulsions of 1905 and 1909. Aunt Bine often said that she was the best nigger ever born, cause all the rest was run off. Of course, just about all Americans pronounce cause, cuz. Cuz is correct, but no one writes cuz, C-U-Z, when a white person uses cause. Moreover, whites and blacks from a given part of Arkansas pronounce ever, born, and most other words about the same. To put Smith's words in dialect is simply to otherize her, to make her speech different from and inferior to white's use of language. By even the narrowest definition, it's racist, for it treats one group differently and worse than another when they pronounce the same word identically. Such dialect was also antique, even back in 1955. It's striking when well-meaning whites say nigger as a matter of course. More often, whites in sundown towns don't mean well. In 1966, when Gordon Wright and his family moved into Gross Point, Michigan, the first African-American family to do so, they endured months of the slur. Adults yelled, Nigger, go back down south. The Kiwanis Club bus, taking children to a park during the summer, slowed at the right residence so the kids could lean out and yell the epithet. When school started in the fall, the safety patrol boys called the right children niggers on their way to school. Kathy Spillman grew up in North Tonawanda, a sundown town near Buffalo, New York, in the 1970s and 80s. The nicest word I learned was colored. Nigger was the typical term, she told me. I learned to hold my breath when blacks walked by, because I was taught they smell bad. Roger Horowitz, now at the Hagley Museum in Delaware, lived in Marquette Park, a sundown neighborhood in Chicago, where there was and is the casual assumption in bars that you can tell nigger jokes. Two thousand miles southwest, in Indian Wells, California, Richard Williams and his famous tennis star daughters, Venus and Serena, 
experienced nigger at the Pacific Life Open in March 2001, after Venus pulled out of the tournament with knee tendonitis, conceding her match to Serena. Accusations surfaced that their father, Richard, was fixing his daughter's matches and that the sisters didn't want to play each other, according to an account in USA Today. In Serena's final match two days later against Kim Kleisters, the charged-up crowd unleashed its wrath on her, booing Serena's every move. According to Richard Williams, when Venus and I were walking down the stairs to our seats, people kept calling me nigger. Sundown Humor It isn't just nigger, of course. In Pinckneyville, the sundown town in southwestern Illinois, one of the town's beloved teachers, Doc Thomas, used to openly make racial slurs in the classroom, according to Ron Slater, who graduated from Pinckneyville High School in 1966. An example of a Doc Thomas comment that sticks in my mind was as follows. Well, boys and girls, we have a track meet with Sparta this Friday. Don't think we have to worry, though, as it's supposed to be cold, and you know those jungle bunnies don't run so well when it's cold. Such a wisecrack, coming casually from the person in charge, can make quite an impact on a classroom. Certainly no defense of African Americans, no opposition to such witticisms will likely be attempted by a student. Sundown Town rhetoric descends to its lowest point when speakers try to be funny. A recent graduate of Darien High School, the elite Connecticut suburb of New York City, noted that Darien's whiteness allowed for the kids to joke and to maintain racist stereotypes. A lot of my friends came in with racist jokes, and you never had to worry about it. Many racial jokes considered funny in sundown towns are simply wretched. Consider this quip, told to Ray Elliott when he was teaching in the public schools of Robinson, Illinois, a sundown town near Terre Haute, Indiana, in the mid-1980s. On Martin Luther King Jr. Day, he walked into a restaurant and saw some friends. One said to him, If they would have killed four more of the sons of bitches, you could have had the whole week off, Elliot. Real hatred slinks below the surface of that joke. The same attitude toward King that Linda Dudek remembers from one of her best friends in second grade in Berwyn, Illinois, a sundown suburb just west of Chicago. That nigger had it coming, the little girl said the day after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. And Dudek continues, that was pretty much the attitude that prevailed at my grammar school. Labor historian Ramel McCoy remembers this joke taught by his civics teacher in an all-white high school about a black hobo who got off a freight train in an Alabama town unaware of the nigger don't let the sun set on you here signs at the town lines. A gang of whites beat him soundly before asking, If we let you go, will you catch the next train out of here? If you let me go, I'll catch that one I got off of. Telling such a joke in a sundown town classroom 
lends it a special relevance, an edge. The teller assumes, almost always correctly, that no one will object, and sharing such jokes bonds teller and audience into a racial in-group. Of course, one doesn't need to be in a sundown town to hear such jokes. Almost any all-white environment will do. On one occasion, I found that I had told a side-splitting joke in a sundown town. I was telling a volunteer in the Grant County Museum in Sheridan, Arkansas, about sundown towns in other states, and mentioned what the name of the sundown town in southern Illinois, Anna, is said to stand for, Ain't No Niggers Allowed. He laughed uproariously. People from multiracial towns, including white people, don't think it's funny. In this town, you must call them Negroes. An incident from Newmarket, a sundown town in southwestern Iowa, shows that whites do know to behave better in interracial situations. In about 1986, African-American John Baskerville went to a high school play there. In Baskerville's words, one of the characters was the black maid of the murder victim who found the body, so she had to testify. When the young girl acting as the black maid appeared on stage, we were all shocked. The young white girl appeared in blackface. She had very black makeup with white lips and bugged-out eyes and dressed like Hattie McDaniel in Gone with the Wind, headscarf and all. After the play, the young girl who played the part tried to hide from us. She was so embarrassed because she knew that it was inappropriate and hadn't expected us there. Sundown town residents also know that nigger is an offensive term. I asked Susan Penny, who grew up in Oblong, a sundown town in southeastern Illinois in the 1970s and 80s, did you hear the word nigger when you were growing up? Are you kidding? She replied. I never knew they were called anything but niggers. I must have been seven years old, and my mother drove us to Terre Haute, my brother and me. And my brother and I were in awe because there were two things that we'd never seen in Oblong, black people and nuns. And I said nigger, and my mother corrected me. When we're in this town, you must call them Negroes. The admonition shows that Penny's mother knew full well that African Americans don't appreciate the term. For that matter, she probably knew that some white people in interracial towns don't like it either. So she knew to correct her children's verbal behavior in this town, Terre Haute, where it might earn them disapproval. She also knew that nobody cared in Oblong, so she didn't bother to correct their word usage in Oblong. This is a vivid example of a privilege white towns confer on their residents. Unlike other Americans, they need not think twice about the terms they use to refer to other groups or the jokes they tell about them. Similarly, the suburbanites in Indian Wells know that nigger is offensive. 
They also know they can get away with it at an almost all-white tennis venue in an almost all-white town. In the 2000 census, Indian Wells had just 15 African Americans among its 3,816 residents. Some high school students from sundown towns imagine somehow that even in interracial situations in the big city, they can behave as they do at home, where they enjoy the privilege of living in a world of white rhetoric. They behave with a paradoxical combination of inappropriate, even dangerous, arrogance and inappropriate, even fearful, timidity. First, they dread going into an interracial restaurant. Then they feel they can get away with saying nigger in it. Roger Carnes, who's taught social studies in several all-white towns in northern Indiana and also coaches swimming, supplied a rich and complex account of the rhetoric that high school students from these towns exhibit when they get to their big city, Fort Wayne, South Bend, Elkhart, or Indianapolis. Students ask questions like, Will we get mugged? That black, or as frequently colored, guy has on a red T-shirt. Is he in a gang? Or taking swimmers into a McDonald's. I saw a black guy. Is this neighborhood safe? Is that guy a rapper? And just generalized stupid behavior. Fake ghetto accents caricaturized walks and behavior. I'm still surprised that I need to tell these kids that the term colored is considered offensive. And several years ago, I had to tell kids specifically that nigger was never acceptable. After 20 years of teaching and coaching, I discovered that if I didn't remind them of that before we went to a big city, that they would use those kinds of terms and use them loudly, or they would ask an African-American what gang they were in, or just point and laugh out the bus window. Of course, students like these already know nigger is offensive. They just imagine such rules don't apply to them because they come from a sundown town. Some of their antics are mainly performed for the benefit of their fellow white students. As they make fun or ask insensitive questions of a member of the black outgroup, the students confirm their membership in their white in-group. Carnes explains how the demographic makeup of his students' hometown contributes to their rude and racist behavior. I think that growing up in an all-white community is detrimental for the white kids. I believe that that kind of upbringing allows people to think of minorities as an other. It allows you to suspend your normal respect for people. Some of these kids don't see a person walking down the street. They see what amounts to a character. They'd never consider being so disrespectful to someone they just haven't thought about what they're doing as disrespectful because they're seeing a unique other and not just the guy down the street. Here, Carnes supplies a perfect example and analysis of the file folder phenomenon. His students react to the African Americans they meet not as people but as examples of a type. 
his students aren't necessarily bad people, even though they behave badly. In a sense, their words and acts are shallow. But their surface racism allows white supremacy to fester and makes it harder for a humane response to come forth the next time race is on the table. As Carnes concludes, growing up in an all-white town has a profound impact on those who grow up there. I believe that the lack of diversity is damaging to all. We're not prejudiced. These Indiana young people would doubtless deny that they meant anything mean by their comments and antics. Denial is a peculiar characteristic of the talk in Sundown Town. When criticized for their racist jokes or use of nigger, residents typically deny they're racist. In the early 1990s, football players in Hemet, California, a rapidly growing sundown exurb of Los Angeles, routinely called African Americans on opposing teams niggers. Scott Bailey, the Hemet quarterback, admitted some of his teammates had aimed the slur at opponents. But they didn't intend it as a racial slur. In Bailey's words, I don't think anybody who does say it means anything by it. A black football player from Ramona, one of Hemet's opponents, observed, I just think, you know, there aren't that many black people out there in the Hemet area, so they think saying that stuff is okay. Many residents of sundown towns not only deny that their humor is racist, they also deny that their community's anti-black acts are racist, even as they agree that those acts make it impossible for African Americans to live there safely. A former resident of an Illinois sundown town characterized her former neighbors, They don't have anything against colored people. They just don't want them to spend the night. Surely there is a certain tension between the two halves of that sentence. I'm not a racist, but, a resident of Villa Grove, Illinois, said, prefacing a long story of how in 1990, when he was a senior in Villa Grove High School, he and 45 or 50 of my buddies gathered in their pickup trucks at the city limits to head off a carload of African Americans and Latinos from Decatur. They'd come intending to date Villa Grove girls, one of whom made the mistake of bragging about it at school. We beat the shit out of them, he concluded triumphantly, and the episode surely ensured Villa Grove's sundown reputation for another decade or two. How do residents of sundown towns accomplish the rhetorical feat of admitting they beat up blacks and keep them out while denying they're racist? Only the tiniest proportion of whites are willing to admit to being racist. Typically, whites define racism to be almost an empty category, so we aren't guilty of it. Self-proclaimed white supremacist David Duke saying, I hate niggers, is a case of racism. Almost nothing else passes muster. This rhetoric of denial is timeless. Here's an example from the Gentry Journal Advance, an Arkansas newspaper, in 1906. 
With a population of 1,000, Gentry has not a solitary Negro inhabitant. We're not prejudiced against the colored man, but we feel that we can get along better without his presence, and are therefore glad to have him remain in some other town or locality. There are plenty of white men here to do the work, ordinarily, and a Negro population under the present conditions would not only be superfluous, but an annoyance and a nuisance. We're certainly thankful that the dusky denizens have always given our town the go-by. The editor characterizes African Americans as a group, as an annoyance and a nuisance. Avoids words such as people or citizens in favor of dusky denizens and clearly favors an indefinite continuation of Gentry's sundown policies. Yet, we're not prejudiced. A corollary of denial is the curious fact that residents of sundown towns believe they have no problem with racism or race relations. In sharp contrast, people in interracial towns know they do. In Decatur, for example, 33.4% of adults surveyed in about 1985 ranked racial difficulties as the most pressing social problem in Decatur. Well before Decatur made national headlines in 1999, when its school system expelled seven African Americans for fighting in the stands during a football game. Few residents of Pena, a sundown town 30 miles south, would rank race relations as their most pressing social problem. Neither would residents of most sundown suburbs. Nationally, as reported in the 2001 book Race and Place, whites living in overwhelmingly white communities perceive the least discrimination against blacks, while whites in majority black neighborhoods perceive the most. Ironically, then, recognition of racial difficulties is a sign of racial progress, and race relations are in fact much more problematic in Pena or sundown suburbs than in Decatur, the latter's moment of notoriety in 1999 notwithstanding. It's true that white children in Pena have no problem getting along with African Americans since they never encounter them. Nevertheless, as they go through life, these children may encounter some race relations problems that Decatur's white children do not. The Paradox of Exclusivity Denial is especially common in suburbia. Residents of elite suburbs are much less likely than residents of independent towns or working-class suburbs to admit that their communities keep out African Americans, or did until recently. Their particular need for deniability arises from what we might call the paradox of exclusivity. We've seen how in metropolitan areas, neighborhoods are ranked more prestigious to the degree that they exclude African Americans, people working in lower and middle classes, and, in the past, Jews. Such exclusivity connotes social status, even good breeding. For this reason, 
white suburbs have usually done little to combat segregation. Instead, they fostered it. At the same time, exclusivity also suggests prejudice, racism, bad breeding, even to the elite themselves. As early as 1976, 88% of white Americans agreed with the statement, black people have a right to live wherever they can afford to. And educated people agreed even more strongly. So residents of sundown suburbs know they mustn't admit they live in a place that keeps or kept blacks out. The ethical paradox is this. On one hand, to live in an exclusive area is good, connoting positive things about oneself and one's family. On the other hand, to exclude is bad, implying negative things about oneself and one's family. How do affluent white residents of sundown suburbs deal with this paradox of exclusivity? They don't want to deny that their suburb is exclusive because exclusivity proves to themselves and others that they're successful and know how and where to live. But they do want to deny that they are all white on purpose. So they develop a motivated blindness to the workings of social structure, sociolexia. The talk in sundown suburbs prompts residents to be bad sociologists and bad historians. Suburban rhetoric has so mystified the exclusion that created sundown suburbs that many suburbanites now sincerely view residential segregation as nothing but the natural outgrowth of countless decisions by individual families. William H. White, Jr., wrote The Organization Man in 1956, a study of executives based on fieldwork in Park Forest, a sundown suburb of Chicago. He noted that several years before he did his research, Park Forest suffered an acrid controversy over the possible admission of Negroes. For a small group, admission of Negroes would be fulfillment of personal social ideals. For another, many of whom had just left Chicago wards, which had been taken over, it was the return of a threat left behind. Most residents, he noted, whom he called the moderates, were in the middle, and these were perhaps most sorely vexed. This majority was against admission too, but though no Negroes ever did move in, the damage was done. The issue had been brought up, and the sheer fact that one had to talk about it made it impossible to maintain unblemished the ideal egalitarianism so cherished. In short, most residents of the suburb wanted it to stay sundown, but desired deniability. In his famous 1944 book about race relations, An American Dilemma, Gunnar Myrtle saw this. Trying to defend their behavior to others, people will twist and mutilate their beliefs of how social reality actually is. Residents deny their town's history of discrimination and its ongoing sundown apparatus because they want to credit themselves with success, 
not blame themselves for prejudice and discrimination. Yes, we live in an elegant, affluent, white, but this last goes unstated, area, with lovely amenities and low crime, people might say. All of that says good things about us. But anyone could live here if they wanted to and had the means. It's not our fault. It's to our credit. America is a meritocracy. That others do not live here merely says bad things about them, at least implicitly. As Robert Terry put it in For Whites Only, commenting on residential segregation in the Detroit area in the 1970s, who's ever heard a northerner admit he did something because he was a racist? Our propensity for moral justification doesn't permit it. Rather, our racism is couched in quasi-moral terms, which command social respectability and accrue social acceptance to us. Just as many white Southerners used to believe the legal separation of the races in Southern society was natural, many white Northerners still seem to believe the geographic separation of the races in Northern metropolitan areas is natural. When the racial composition of their community is so overwhelmingly non-black, that accident can't plausibly be invoked. Residents often blame African Americans for not moving in, saying that blacks prefer their own. In 2002, I asked a realtor in Kenilworth why no African American family lived in that elite Chicago suburb to his knowledge. Birds of a feather flock together, he replied. People are happier with their own kind. I'd noticed his Armenian-sounding last name, so I asked him, Do you live with other Armenians? No, he replied, but the first generation did. The second generation moved out, lived with other people. I didn't bother to point out that most African Americans are now at least tenth-generation Americans and fourth-generation Chicagoans, much longer than most Armenians. A resident of an overwhelmingly white neighborhood near a golf club in South Tulsa told me of a black doctor who moved there. He had to move back to North Tulsa, she said, because his black patients rose up in protest. Chapter 8 told how Patrick Clark, curator of the Andrew County, Missouri Museum, denied that his own county or nearby counties had any history of excluding African Americans. Clark went on to write, Incidentally, the only community in the state we are familiar with being associated with one racial makeup is, or was, near St. Louis, Missouri, an all-black community, Kinlock, Missouri, a small town some 300 miles away. Other whites have echoed Clark's thinking, invoking Boley, Harlem, Mound Bayou, Mississippi, or the South Side Ghetto of Chicago. Some whites go on to hold that the existence of black towns legitimizes the racist policies of white sundown towns. But most black towns and townships never excluded whites. 
Neither did black neighborhoods. As Myrtle put it in 1944, most mixed residential areas in America are cases of whites living in Negro areas and not of Negroes living in white areas, where they wouldn't have been allowed. Even Harlem has never been close to all black. In 1990, Kinlock had 17 whites in five white households. Today, although some African Americans do seek majority black environments, most still prefer diverse neighborhoods with white and black and other residents. To a much greater degree, it's white Americans who seek to be with their own kind. To locate the problem in the supposedly free choice of the minority group is sociolexic, even though it may be comforting to whites. Elite suburbanites also avoid responsibility for the racial composition of their community by claiming that African Americans don't have the wherewithal to move there. It's an economic thing. They can't afford it here. In America, it's considered perfectly all right to exclude on the basis of social class. Indeed, an element of the American dream itself is to separate oneself and one's family from the teeming masses. Grouping houses by social class is still a de rigueur principle of real estate. I hope that earlier chapters have laid to rest the claim that income differences explain sundown suburbs. They don't. It's a small step from blaming African Americans for not having the income to move into a sundown suburb to blaming them for not having the personal characteristics, IQ, for example, to earn that income. Many residents of elite sundown suburbs take that step. Obviously, to believe that America's a sort of machine based on ability, and African Americans have less ability, eliminates any guilt about living in a community that keeps them out. This explains why The Bell Curve, the 1994 book that argued that differences in income by class and race result from differences in intelligence, was so popular in elite sundown suburbs. It located the problem in them, the outgroups, just as the eugenicists used to. Precisely because it blames the victim, the resulting ideology is more dangerous than the overt racism of independent sundown towns. Residents of elite sundown suburbs are free to infer that African Americans are inferior, which explains their absence. Residents of such independent sundown towns as Anna or Sheridan can't say that. They know their town has kept blacks out. Claiming that ability results purely from individual achievement rather than one's place in the social structure is also a pleasant way to interpret the high SAT scores earned by one's children and their equally privileged friends in an elite community. Of course, affluent parents really know better. When making decisions about their own children's futures, the rich know that ability is largely socially created, 
which is why they invest in Sesame Street magazine for their toddler, computer camp for their eight-year-old, and the Princeton Review for their eleventh grader facing the SAT. They may get furious when a school principal tries to jettison tracking, or their own child doesn't get into an advanced placement class. They go to great lengths, private schools, hiring college coaches, and so on, to give their children a leg up in college admission. Thus, when it comes to their own children, they're structural sociologists who see positive individual outcomes as the result of expenditures and programs. However, their awareness of suburban advantages, which they employ to justify why they moved there in the first place, disappears when the time comes to discuss the outcome of the college admission process. Now, elite whites no longer brag about or even perceive the benefits of class and racial segregation. Instead, they now explain the positive results of these advantages, such as high SAT scores, as stemming from their child's individual intelligence and ability. Suddenly they now assert that aptitude inheres in individuals, and the SAT measures aptitude. Again, to believe that America sorts people based on ability, and one's child happens to be among the most able, is more satisfying than to admit that living in a sundown suburb amounts to a deliberate choice to stack the deck. Such social Darwinism is not only social lexic, but dangerous to democracy. Misled by these rationalizations, rich, white, segregated children usually don't understand the processes in their own metropolitan areas that conferred advantages upon them based on their race and social class. They made it, so why can't everyone? In Privileged Ones, Robert Coles interviewed a male high school student in a sundown suburb of Boston who exemplified this sociolexic thinking. My father says it'll always be like that. There are people who are prejudiced against anyone who's tried to work hard and make some money and prejudiced in favor of the people who don't care if they work or not, so long as they collect welfare. In my 63 years in America, I have yet to meet a single person prejudiced in favor of the people who don't care if they work or not. And I suspect neither this boy nor his father have either. But such stereotypes are satisfying, for they imply that as soon as African Americans really apply themselves, our racial problems will be fixed. We, on the other hand, are not responsible so there's nothing we can do about it. Knowing no poor people, or people of color firsthand, residents of elite sundown suburbs are particularly susceptible to stereotypes to explain the visible differences among neighborhoods. That there is the problem. Whites are susceptible to stereotypes, particularly the whites who live in all-white towns. They are susceptible to anti-black stereotypes. Context of white supremacy, that is the first audio segment. James Lowen, suspected racist. Sundown Towns, a hidden dimension of American racism.
If you have comments, questions, suggestions, uh, terms uh, that you thought were significant from the first portion of the reading, uh, feel free to share the number 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. For some reason, it seemed for people that were listening to the live stream, the audio restarted. Uh, I was listening to the audio from the live stream, so at least on mine, it seemed like it restarted uh, strangely. Uh, it took a second or two to get that reconfigured, and then it got back to where we were in the reading. Uh, so that discombobulated anyone who was listening to the live stream uh, for the moment. Folks who were on the phone line, it should not have been an issue. Anywho, number again. 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. I did say I was going to read... Patrick Phillips, Blood at the Root, really quick, and then I'll get our callers. I'll also read from folks who uh, wrote in to share. So we have Patrick Phillips, who's a white man. He's writing specifically about Forsyth, Georgia, where they booted out the Negras in 1912. Uh, and also, that was, I'll make sure I get that, and he said that w that was something exceptional about this town is that they drove out all the Negras and kept them out for, you know, the next 80 years or so. As this book has shown, there's nothing exceptional about that at all. In fact, that is the rule. Uh, but he's writing specifically about Forsyth. And so he starts <clears throat> quoting from a white historian uh, who's talking about the history of white supremacy in Forsyth. He writes, Nash went on to tell the dire consequences if black residents tried to hold out and he spoke with one family who'd received their ultimatum, not from grown men, but from two white children. Failure to vacate on the date set meant a stealthy visit in the night and either dynamite or the torch. The result was a state of terror which caused one Negro family to accept a 24-hour notice delivered by two children aged five and six respectively who had learned the game from their elders. All of that is a quote from this white historian Nash. This is Patrick Phillips' words. As Forsyth's white children learned the game, in quotes, of terrorizing black neighbors and driving them from their homes, a small group of African-Americans tried to continue living peacefully in town, hoping they might be protected by their close connections to rich whites. Nash spoke with one black employee at a, cunning, at a coming boarding house and told how even after repeated notices, the owner kept her on until January, but let her go then for fear he could no longer protect the servant's life. Nash heard similar stories about longtime employees on the farms of the county whose white bosses only dismissed them, often with regret and apologies after repeated threats from the mobs. That's all I wanted to share. The main point Again, white children are not ignorant about the system of white supremacy. White children delivering 24-hour ultimatums. Vacate or else, niggers. 
five-year-olds, six-year-olds called it a game, said they learned this from the parents. We heard that, I think, before. And white people getting in trouble with other whites if they do not abide by the racist code. The mob will pay a visit to you, too, if you, you know, let the color get the colors out of Forsyth County. Blood at the root. Uh, Patrick Phillips was a guest on the cows 2016. You can go back and hear what he had to say about the book in detail. This is the one where uh, Oprah Winfrey, she went to Forsyth in the 80s and was really popular. This is really early in the, the, the history of uh, Miss Winfrey's productions. Uh, there we go. Folks who dialed in, if you have commentary on what we read this here week, uh, proceed line should be open. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Hello, everyone. Hello. Thank you for taking my call. This is Red in Nevada. Just a couple of things. Um, I know one of the major points that I also that I would really focus on when reading or listening to book study is how um, Black people's um, words are quoted, and at least that was one thing that I can appreciate from this read it from this segment uh it was the segment uh under the sub the i'm sorry the portion under the sub chapter what have you the talk in sundown town and when he speaks about an african-american woman quote-unquote aunt vine um how she was quoted and just how like her her, I guess, slang was written out as the slang instead of, like, when she said cuz, C-U-Z, um, it was actually written out as C-U-Z instead of because or what have you. Uh, so at least, I guess, that one thing it was um, pointed out. And the other thing was the, the part based is, uh, under the subheading in this town he must call them Negroes. And I feel like when he speaks about this Roger um, Kern, who taught social studies in several all-white towns in northern Indiana and also coaches swimming, um, he basically, from my understanding, it seems like he, this coach was maybe somewhat of a good white person, at least that's how I'm taking it. I definitely could be an error, just basically how he was telling the students you cannot um, call them nigger in, in these certain towns that's wherever they're going to. And I feel like that part, it's, I feel like he, because at least um, when he's referring to this teacher and coach, it's not like he's referencing him as in a white supremacist. I think that he is more refined and he's not even kind of referencing him as more refined white supremacist. If you're teaching, if you're only teaching these these uh, suspected racist white children to when to be racist, um, at least vocally, and when not to be, I think that that would qualify this person as a suspected racist at the, at the very least. Um, and I guess I'll just, um, oh, and then also um, in that basically that same segment, there's a sentence saying, Carnes explained how the demographic makeup of his students' hometown, hometown, I'm sorry, his students' hometown contributes to their rude and racist behavior. I don't 
know why he needed to have Rude. I feel like that kind of minimizes the fact that it was more racist than Rude. And I'll I'll meet my lines. Thank you. Much obliged, Red in Nevada. I think uh, that has been a pattern throughout the book, uh, not just a pattern throughout this text. Uh, I think that is uh, a pattern, one of the significant ways that whites practice racism, minimizing their acts of terrorism and violence. Uh, it just becomes rudeness. Or as you stated last week, just got out of hand, got a nigra kill, killed. Uh, other folks who dialed in that we missed totally, if you have uh, commentary or questions, proceed. Hello, Mabby Harris. I uh, heard both of you. Uh, let's get our female caller, I think. Go ahead uh, for the lady. Right on. Thank you kindly. Um, so good evening, everybody, and good evening, Gus. I, um, I took more um, connection to the part about the joke, nigga joke. And so um, with that said, I decided to look up jokes as folklore because I I understand, you know, folklore is how um, you, how you pass things down as far as um, social standards. So I got, I'm getting this from, I can't figure out what university it is right now. I just have the link in front of me. It's faculty, faculty.gcsu.edu. And I can send you the link, Gus, but they say basically, um, Joke is a type of folklore, and what they're supposed to do is tell us something about society, culture, and the way the human mind works. How you understand They help categorize. Hello? Oh, I'm sorry. Hello? Yes, ma'am, we can hear you. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so um, they, uh, they say all folk- folklore reminds us about something about society, culture, and the way uh, the human mind works. Categories help order and structure reality, and they overlap. It says, but they're messy, and then it has overlap. Transcending categories is necessary to adapt, learn, innovate, and question reality. So, moving on, they talk about uh, um, what is this? There are different types of jokes. He says. Some jokes include bar jokes, your mama jokes, sick jokes, dirty jokes, ethnic jokes, sexist jokes, so on and so forth. And then he mentions disaster jokes. And I think this particular one is uh, something pertinent to uh, the broadcast right now, that uh, disaster jokes, uh, rebel versus world defined by media, battle for control of discourse about death and disaster and can't, can readily be co-opted. So the joke example here uh, is Katrina, disaster joke. Question, what's George Bush's position on Roe versus Wade? Answer, he really does not care about how people get out of New Orleans. So with that said, um, we all know who were the people to suffer the most during that event. And you know that they were non-white. And it's just proof that these nigga jokes are not being told that there's no such thing as just when the word is said, period. And um, there's no such thing as just with a nigga joke, um, therefore. And they need this um, basically in 
to uh, support uh, what the doctor Marimba said, the Sealy, to keep it going. They have to keep that. They have to feed it with these things in order to justify passively why black people are not in their towns and why black people are constantly suffering from racial dislocation, confusion, uh, so forth, so on, either by direct violence or by um, disasters occurring. And I'll mute my line for now. Thank you. Jokes are grievances. I think that's been said a number of times over the years on this year broadcast. I thought I was muted and I was mumbling as you were giving the great information about jokes. Uh, I was mumbling. Uh, how do I think about the Negro? That's what I was mumbling uh, when you were explaining the purpose of jokes and how they are transmitting culture. Uh, male caller who spoke up simultaneously. Uh, did you have commentary? Greetings, Gus. Greetings, everyone. Uh, the the, uh, the first part of the reading was uh, uh, specifying uh, the practice of racism, white supremacy, and sundown towns through the uh, venue of sports. And uh, yes, those things were quite prevalent uh, during times and past. And even in the more, in, even in the present, in a more refined means, uh, it may not be a quote unquote sundown town, but white people would uh, take on the uh, symbolically a sports team to practice the same derivatives that existed in sundown towns as far as representing that particular team. Uh, I've had some experiences back when I was in high school uh, in the uh, mid-70s uh, uh, regarding uh, an area down here in South Florida that's called Homestead, Florida. Uh, at a particular high school, South Dade Senior High, uh, the coaches, primarily the white coaches, would warn us. In other words, I was on that quote-unquote interracial team that uh, the writer was talking about, and the white coaches would warn us after the game uh, to have your windows rolled up on the bus. And uh, most of us would uh, follow that rule because the reason why, because uh, rocks and bottles and uh, soda cans, and at that time, soda cans were not made out of that uh, flimsy uh, uh, material <laughs> that exists now. Uh, they, it was a lot more heavier metal. Plus, if it's full, it can do damage. And, uh, and the funny thing about it, and, I, and I'm putting emphasis on funny thing about it, uh, the, the only person that was harmed uh, in that particular incident was a white male that uh, a bottle or something busted him upside the head. And uh, I remember him bleeding on the bus on the way back, coming home from uh, kicking South Dade's behind. Uh, yes, uh, so that, that's quite prevalent. Even now today, even from the, the, the I think what some of us may have captured uh, last football season in the NFL, the uh, the incident where some white fans spit into uh, uh, a a non-white black male player's face uh, that played for Kansas City Chiefs on live on TV. I think it was on Monday Night Football. 
where that took place. Uh, white people still uh, uh, utilize that type of behavior. Uh, I have here also in my notes uh, uh, earlier the the writer attempted attempted to lessen the uh, the verbiage, the racist verbiage that white people use as though, well, it's just something that, uh, uh, you know, they say it's not necessarily meant to be uh, negative or anything like that. And that, that was, that's a uh, long and scripted practice of white people uh, uh, that, that uh, does that, to want to keep that narrative in that way to further confuse primarily non-white people uh, in the process. Uh, yes, he talked, to, he talked quite a bit about, uh, about sports in that light. Uh, there was an experience, another experience that I had uh, in 2007 as a coach uh, at uh, uh, basically uh, all black team, Miami Northwestern Senior High, going to uh, a subdivision of, of Dallas, Texas. I'm pretty sure uh, in that environment uh, that, that most, if not all, of the residents were white, although they had a few black kids on the team. Matter of fact, one of them was the son of a, of a Dallas Cowboy NFL football player. That's, on, that's the reason why he was allowed to get on the team, but nevertheless, uh, we uh, traveled from Miami to uh, uh, Dallas to play this game. And uh, normally in those type of situations, uh, the black team prevails uh, because the players, no matter what their age, they get it that we're under a global system of racism, white supremacy, uh, to whatever their level is of understanding. They have that, that they, they know it's, 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 uh, it's an opposing uh, negative uh, 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 environment uh, that that uh, they can utilize their particular talents and thoughts to be able to uh, be successful. So the motivation is is always available for that uh, that black quote unquote team, and they're normally successful. Uh, last but not least, uh, the ironic thing about it, on what I was saying earlier about the writer. Uh, uh, attempting to confuse the, the terminology uh, uh, that white people use. I, I was just before the program earlier this afternoon was studying some of the past programs that you had with Jane Elliott also doing something kind of similar and trying to uh, lessen and or confuse non-white people with her don't say non-white uh, 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 comments. You know, and that's all I have to say. Thank you. Much obliged, retired firefighter. Uh, if we have other folks that we missed totally, if you have commentary you would like to share, line should be open. Proceed. Yes, may I be heard? Greetings, Mr. Demery Four. Yes, greetings, Gus. Greetings to the other callers, listeners. Uh, Red in Nevada, uh, Grapplemania, retired firefighter. Uh, I'll start out with uh, the reading 
confirms that uh, racist child already knows how to practice racism by grade school. Uh, but I think that it's even earlier than that, probably uh, elementary school. And we had some examples. Uh, he gave one example of, I think some kids was as young as five or six delivering a message to uh, some black residents that they had to leave town. But <clears throat> the school mascots, you know, I was listening to the firefighter from Florida. He probably might be familiar with some of these schools have these racist mascots uh, where they are. Well, we got one in NFL with the Redskins and, you know, these are obvious uh, offensive uh, images, but whites refuse to change them and would even fight to keep their racist uh, mascots and images. Uh, that part about the uh, child or children uh, practicing racism by elementary was confirmed by what you read with uh, Patrick uh, Phillips. And <clears throat> This book talks about the difference between the white cheerleaders and black cheerleaders. I had question mark in my head about that. Maybe somebody can clear that up, but it may have been an act of racism because all I could, well, the say both for high school females cheerleading. Well, besides the dance moves, maybe, and the, the body, uh, uh, you know, what, what else could he be talking about when he was talking about the difference in the uh, white cheerleaders and black cheerleaders? But the film, the Coburn Kentucky film, <clears throat> the young man was talking, they did not, not only throw rocks, they threw cinder blocks through the windshield of the bus. And they had to drive the bus, I guess, in the dark, you know, without a windshield. And uh, he's constantly talking about uh, uh, Americans that want to be with their own kind. It seems like whites are the only ones that want to be with their own kind. And uh, Sundown Towns confirmed that. In that part of the talk, <clears throat> when uh, he was saying, okay, some whites use the word nigger, I guess, to replace uh, nigger or negro, color, whatever. But I believe they know what they're doing. Um, they know that that is offensive language, especially when uh, blacks are in attendance. Uh, I can remember a history teacher, uh, in my mind, doing that to us as kids mispronouncing, uh, well, he was just called us niggas, actually. And, uh, but uh, he mentioned that working our way in healing, I have no idea what that meant. Uh, uh, using uh, the word nigger in literature, I guess that was an example of progress. They don't do that anymore. <laughs> 
But when they use Negro or colored or whatever, it's not capitalized. So <laughs> you're not going to use nigger anymore. You're still not going to capitalize. And we're going to always paint it in a negative light if it's anything to do with black. And there was a mention of, and I reject that when blacks use the word nigger, that they're not using it in a malicious nature. And there was a mention of Richard Williams uh, with his daughters, Venice, Venus and Serena. And this may be a cowbell uh, because I believe they both married white men, but uh, being called nigger at the tennis matches. And we read that that book on the, on, uh, the program, uh, Black and White, Richard, Richard Williams. And I wonder if the author laughed himself when he was talking to the man in the bar and told him what Anna stood for. Because I know when you tell an ethnic joke, it's always funnier if it's the other guy, if it's the outside guy. If you tell a, if he's Italian, you tell an Italian joke, he can't find that quite as funny as he can the nigga joke. That's always hilarious. And you mentioned black people don't appreciate the term nigga. I think it's a, it, it's more severe than that. And um, one last thing, mentioning the talk he had with the Armenian, and he was saying that I guess blacks uh, want to be around their own kind. And he said that he wanted to tell him that blacks were tenth generation in this country, and but Armenians wasn't. But he actually didn't. He just stated he wanted to tell. He didn't say. And I'll move my line on that. Thanks, thanks for the call. Who doesn't love a good nigger joke? Mm. Much obliged, Mr. Demi for Yes, indeed. The book club, uh, I think that was 2014, black and white, the way I see it. Richard Williams. Lots of memorable tidbits uh, about white supremacy, racism in that one, including Indian Wells. Absolutely. Uh, if other folks have uh, comments, questions from the first portion of the reading, feel free. Start 6-1. Get your hand up. Uh, we'll get your commentary before we get to audio segment number two. Uh, some of the notes that I took, uh, he used the term otherness early on in this section. I always reject that term. I have no idea who, what specifically they're talking about. <clears throat> Generally, it'll be used to talk about non-white people. Otherness? <laughs> Other than what? Uh, let's see. The He says blacks and whites. To, oh, the cheerleading. Mr. Demery Ford, I had the same thing. There's no footnote there. That black cheerleaders and white cheerleaders are different. He didn't explain what those differences are uh, or provide evidence uh, to support that conclusion. I thought that also could have been an act of racism. The hominy coons invoked part of the racist code. Got to find ways to call black people all kinds of racist names. Uh, let's see. They said the cinder block throwing I thought was important. Because it started off, it was described as rock throwing. And I said, oh, man, we had all that last week. Red was talking about that last week. The rock, rock throwing got out of hand. They ended up killing a coon. We had more rock throwing this week. It stood out to me immediately also because 
the children consistently have been the rock throwers, white children. And we're talking about the administration of racism last week. That would be it. Rock throwing seems to be an integral part of keeping, you know, the coloreds out of town. But this isn't rock throwing. He says when we get uh, rocked, they throw rocks at your bus. They throw big cinder blocks. That's what I mean about minimizing. Like I'm thinking, you know, a little pebble or something that you can skip across the water, something tiny that you could throw. See if your friend is at home. Let me throw and tap on the window. No, cinder blocks through the well. Terrorism, racism, white supremacy is always getting minimized. How do you even throw a cinder block through a window? Continuing. Context. Uh, when they were talking about Missouri and Bra- or talking about Missouri and the decision to no longer engage in sporting uh, activities with some of these all white towns because the non-white students were getting injured. Now, I mean, come on. Competition. All of it. I thought, well, that's what they say. You're a student athlete and exemplify the, the best. And you're going in and, and they said, the the non-white students were being injured in ways where there was no evidence that it was done intentionally, but it appeared that that was the case. And for it to get so bad that everyone agreed it would be better to no longer play them. They didn't have any examples of the white students being injured by any of the coons. So I'm assuming that that's not the way that it went. Wow. Uh, let's see. Militants. This is a white woman. These are not the words of Mr. Lowen. This white woman says, uh, oh, wait a minute. Excuse this. These are the words of. So he's talking about a white woman. Who is describing her high school. They were a white high school. They would go play a black high school and uh, Sparta or Duquan. They would go play these schools in Illinois. And sometimes she was saying that the black students or the black high school would harass her. And so she says one time it got so bad that the windows are broken out and riot police were called in from Carbontale. Mr. Lowen, these are his words. He says, I remember this period of militants in black culture between 1969 and about 1972. I would definitely want to know what he means by militants. What is the militants, this period of militants in black culture, 1969, that was the year that Fred Hampton uh, was killed in Chicago. Since we're talking about Illinois, is that militants being gunned down in your residence? Uh, Fred Hampton and Mark Clark, he wasn't alone. Uh, is that is that black militants uh, being killed by enforcement officials in Illinois? Because that's something important that happened in 1969. Vietnam was still happening at that point. You had black people uh, who were going off to Vietnam. Muhammad Ali, I think 1969, he was still going through his battles and what have you. I mean, I don't know. What is what is militants? That'd be a question I would have for Mr. Lewin. Uh, next. He used that word privilege a lot that came out last week as well. It's not a privilege uh, to be able to call black people niggers. That is white power to be able to do and say whatever you want. And no one has the power to stop you. That's not privilege. That is white power, white supremacy. Uh, I loved it when he gave the example. I will say when he gives some of these examples 
uh, where the older white woman is talking that, oh, I love our pastor. He talked to the nigger family and it was great. Uh, the niggers moved in and they knew exactly what to expect. So the niggers didn't have any problem and saying that she just says nigger and she doesn't mean to be offensive, that this is just how she talks. Uh, hearing it and some of it may be may have to do with the way that the narrator, his tone in saying it. Some of this sounds super flowless. Um, I'm never opposed to nigger being in a text. Uh, I prefer that as opposed to N-word. I've made that clear over the years. But something about this, it almost seems uh, overindulgent. Like some, we had a white author before who talked about sometimes one of the ways white people can practice racism. You can say racist things by quoting and referencing other people. Some of it almost seemed a bit much, but... <laughs> That as again, that could have to do with the narrator's voice. Uh, with that illustration, the woman talking, saying "nigga this, nigga that," I don't mind that at all. And if anything, it just shows me how white people can be very refined. Where in certain situations, "nigga this, nigga that," I'm comfortable, no problem. Other situations, and he's had that repeatedly, where different white people have said, "Oh yeah, I remember being five. I remember being six. He had a whole chat where uh, subsection that started last week, where it was a young white child saying, oh, the nigger's over there, and their parents says, oh, no, no, no. We say Negro when we're out in public. When we get back to the sundown town, then we call back to calling them niggers or coons or spear chuckers or whatever else. We say that, again, the significance, white people are informing their children, that is a, a must, that is a requirement of white parents. You got to explain racism, white supremacy to your children so they'll know how to practice racism. Um, let's see. I always think it's curious when white people present uh, a stance for or against interracial ma uh, marriage as a gauge of how progressive, quote unquote, a white person is. I always find that suspicious and tacky at the same time, uh, which he does in the book uh, saying that half the class thought interracial marriages were still illegal. Uh, let's see, in the 90s. Uh, let's see. Oh, I thought it was so he spent so much time talking about rhetoric. He says one of the chief ways that white Americans have progressed, whatever that means, in racial conduct in the 50 years since the 1954 Supreme Court school desegregation decision is in their rhetoric. Words may be shallow. The change may only lie on the surface, but surfaces do matter. People typically relate to each other on the surface. After all, surface surely matters to African-Americans who take deep offense at whites use of nigger. I do not take deep offense at nigger. I have a problem with the system of racism, white supremacy. If there was no system of white supremacy, I probably wouldn't care uh, about anybody calling me a nigger or using the term. I think that is what the problem black people would like to solve more so than white people call us nigger and I'm offended. Uh, let's see. But rhetoric, I think that's so important because I think whites are very skilled at being able to use words to sound as though they are not racist and they are very good. Just that alone. Don't say nigger until we get back home. We don't say nigger out in public. We don't call them coons out in public. Just little things like that where they can be very refined with their words, rhetoric to fool a lot of victims. That's why I would prefer the white woman who's just, oh, yeah, the niggers came in and talked to the pastor and looks like the niggers got along fine. I much rather have that. That way we're not confused about who I am to you. I'm not the other. I'm the nigger. Next. Uh, mm -mm. 
I thought it was significant. They talked about the Kiwanis Club. Again, children, I'm that's something I'm highlighting as a major theme of the book, how many times children are involved in all of this, white children. Uh, he said the Kiwanis Club bus taking children to the park during the summer slowed at the right residence. This is a black household so that white kids could lean out and yell nigger. When school started in the fall, the safety patrol boys called the right children niggers on the way to school. Again, white children cannot be ignorant. And I thought that was significant because the Kiwanis Club is supposed to be about ethics and morality and doing the correct thing. That's what it says when you look it up online. What's the purpose and background of the Kiwanis Club? Doesn't say anything about practicing white supremacy racism or them being a Klan affiliate, but that's what it sounds like right here. Uh, Next. Oh, man, they said on Martin Luther King Jr. Day. On Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Got to be a recent one because they didn't make that a holiday until the 80s, right? On Martin Luther King Jr. Day. He walked into a restaurant and saw some friends. One said to him, if they would have killed four, four more of the sons of bitches, you could have had the whole week off, Elliot. Racist. And again, now all of this, and I'm supposed to accept that white people are ignorant about racism, white supremacy, a joke like that on Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And that's the joke. If they had got four or 12 more, we could have got the whole week off, huh? That's white privilege. Get out of here. Uh, love the red <laughs> racist joke. He has a whole section on racist jokes. Come on. We've been talking about that for a whole decade, a whole decade. I've been saying that's that's when you start to get truth from whites. Now we're not going to have any line. Now we're not going to have any pussy footing. Let me know how you feel about the nigger. And so, and again, that's the same thing that theme, T-H-E-M-E theme. That's the same theme that I have been highlighting for a decade. Most of these jokes are violence towards black people. That's what you see. That, and I mean, that's alarming on many levels or significant. That's what's being passed on. Uh, if we're saying that these jokes, this is a way of transporting culture, the culture Oh, white culture, a core component seems to be violence against black people. Racist jokes make it clear, make it explicit and undeniable. And that seems to be the case overwhelmingly, even in uh, Joe Rogan's uh, book, Two-Faced Racism. He has a section talking about racist jokes. We talked about it when he was a guest on the program. Uh, He said not only are these jokes overwhelmingly directed at black people, like 75 percent, Uh, But the violence is a consistent theme that that's supposed to be funny, that that's something that is to be enjoyed uh, by generations of whites, that that is a bonding moment. Whites bonding around violence against black people. And I'd say that's a theme in this book. Uh, Next. I love it. It wasn't anything where I guess yeah, it's it's not in comparison to a lot of the things that uh, have been seen said in the book. He says he asked Susan Petty, who grew up in Oblong, a sundown town in Illinois again. Uh, Did you hear the word nigger when you were growing up? And she says, are you kidding? I thought white people were ignorant about racism. She says, that's all I heard. I didn't know anything about uh, African-American black people. It was nigger this, nigger that, nigger this. I thought she was ignorant about racism. I thought more importantly, I thought white people don't talk about racism, white supremacy. If it's nigga, this nigga, that nigga, this nigga, that. Oh, yeah, you're talking about racism, white supremacy all the time. Let's see. Uh, 
when she's when he is explaining this situation with Penny, who is this is at least the second time in the book where you got a white child saying that their parent told them not to say nigger out in public. You can say that when we get back to the regular town. He says uh, she knew to correct her children's verbal behavior in this town where it might earn disapproval. She also knew that nobody cared in Oblong. She did not bother to correct their word usage in Oblong. Uh, and he uses white privilege again. This is not white privilege. This is white power. And in my view, it's not that nobody cared in their sundown town. It's that they had a different code. They had a different agreement that here we are not into the refinement. Maybe it's no niggers here. We don't have a need for that. We're just flagrant. They're niggers. Even when we go out into the these other areas where we're being refined, even if I'm not calling you a nigger, you're still a nigger. Even if it appears that I'm being courteous to you for these five minutes or however long it is, might be a week if I'm here, might be a year that I'm here. You're still a nigger. That's where we get confused. That's when he talked about that rhetoric. We get confused. That is a major part of rhetorical ethic. Marimba Ani, that was in the book club too. That's a major part of how we get confused. They can switch that rhetoric up and, okay, we're not going to call you a coon anymore. We'll behave. See there? Didn't call that nigger a coon. And they didn't even know it was that. That's the conversation going back. And we don't have any of those conversations because I'm sure it's not just you don't call them a nigger and that's that. I'm sure it's much more to that conversation. This is what do white people talk about when it's no black people around? You refine your terminology according to the environment. Apparently, that's one thing that they talk about. Next. He get, it seems like he's suggesting that the problem is that uh, these all white towns make white people racist or exacerbate their racism. In my view, that is absolute nonsense. It's not logical. Uh, it's disgraceful, really, because I hear that being uh, submitted regularly. How then with the plantations? Uh, there are tons of environments all over the world where whites are around black people and have been around them for a very long time, including raping them, and they still practice racism, white supremacy. The problem is not white people don't have contact with black people. If they were around black people, they would not be going around calling people coons. They would not go and be going around calling black people niggers. They would behave better if they had grown up with black people. Uh, there's lots of evidence of white people who have grown up sometimes in the same household with niggers. And it didn't make any difference at all. They still practice racism, white supremacy. Be logical. Uh, also, I'll, this will be the last thing. Is the whole subsection, the paradox of exclusivity, I uh, felt that was just him practicing racism, white supremacy, giving more buckets of words, uh, as they say, as opposed to just white people lie. Yes, we have an all-white town, but sometimes we are refined. We don't want to say that we keep the niggers out sometimes, you know. So, so, oh no, we believe in democracy. I voted for Obama three times. In fact, vote for him again if uh, we get to 2020. Oh yes, I've never said the N-word. I'm progressive. Listen to Young Turks all the time. Sometimes that's the way that they practice racism, white supremacy. They wait till the public is gone, and then they get back to the nigger jokes. Just depends how they want to function. Problem is not we need more contact with black diversity, as they say. We need more contact with black people to correct our behavior. Come on. Uh, yeah, I had other notes. I'll stop there. Uh, any last comments folks need to get before we get to the second audio segment? Uh, if I say anything that didn't make sense, anything else stood out folks wanted to share? Is it okay if I share something quick? Irie in Louisiana? Yes, ma'am. Um, something else that I um, I uh, suspect is that the officials, uh, um, administrators, 
and faculty of these high schools or so-called mixed towns are practicing uh, severe covert cases of racism by agreeing to go to sundown towns where they know um, there's a history and also that there will be a reoccurrence of direct violence verbally or physically to the children, which is, you know, again, racism, but uh, I would consider legally uh, child neglect, um, abuse of some sort. And I think that they know this is going to happen and they, and they want the spectacle because they don't want to necessarily cause the harm directly themselves, but they want to see it in action. And I'll mute my line. Thank you. Mm, that violence is a major part of the system. Appreciate that, Irie. Uh, I did also have bragging because I know Mr. Fuller emphasizes that uh, individuals classified as white. Another essential aspect of white culture is bragging about mistreating non-white people. Lots of that's why the mascots, the Redskins, lots of examples of that. The Cleveland Indians, we can go on and on and on. The Texas Rangers, we've had people explain this in detail. Is so many of them, the high school level. Uh, but bragging about racism, the example where he's talking to this white man and he says, Oh, yeah, we found out that one of the high school gals, she was going to date one of the colors. And so we got a couple dozen whites and we went and we got to the border and we put a hurting on them niggers. And I'm going to tell he said, Triumphantly. They left and didn't come back. Bragging. What did I just say? Violence. That is a core aspect of white supremacy. Violence against black men. And I did not say black and brown people. I didn't say non-white people. Joe Fegan didn't say black and brown people. He didn't say non-white people. He didn't say people of color. He said black people specifically. And he had evidence. He had thousands of pages of journal entries. Might have been hundreds. It was over a thousand. He had over a thousand. There we go. He had over a thousand pages of journal entries from white students where he had done this study repeatedly and he looked at the data and it was violence against black people specifically, explicitly. That is a core aspect of white culture. And he has a white man who's bragging about committing violence against black people. Do you see illustrations of that in black? I guess they'll point to Rodney King. That'll be one. I do not see illustrations of black people sitting around and regaling, bragging about making monuments, worshiping, examples of violence against white people there are tons they got whole sports teams and things violence against black people bragging about violence against black people uh unless you can get your comment in in 30 seconds we'll get to the second audio second uh segment anybody have short commentary they can get in 30 seconds yes 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 uh sports stadiums routinely were sundown towns itself doing big uh, football and baseball games. Also, that that, uh, Miami-Dade High School that uh, I was talking about uh, earlier, their original name was the South Dade Rebels. That's it. The rebels, the race soldiers, racist man, racist woman, and racist child. If this book is nothing else, racist child, racist child. My goodness, even at five, they are out committing terrorism. Uh, we will return to James Lowen's Sundown Towns, a hidden dimension of American racism, white supremacy. This is the context of white supremacy. This is audio segment number two. Racial Stereotypes in Sundown Towns During the past 25 years, 
while teaching race relations to thousands of white people and discussing the subject with thousands more, I've found that white Americans expound about the alleged character and characteristics of African Americans in inverse proportion to their contact and experience with them. Isolation and ignorance aren't the only reasons why residents of sundown towns and suburbs are so ready to believe and pass on the worst stereotypes about African Americans, however. They also have a need for denial. The idea that living in an all-white community leads residents to defend living in an all-white community exemplifies the well-established psychological principle of cognitive dissonance. No one likes to think of himself or herself as a bad person, argued Leon Festinger, who established this principle. People who live in sundown towns believe in the golden rule, or say they do, just like people who live in interracial towns. No one would want to be treated the way sundown towns treat African Americans. On the other hand, it's hard for someone living in an all-white town to define that choice of residence as wrong or that policy as bad for our country. Doing so might entail moving or taking a risk in trying to change the town's practices. It's much easier to rationalize one's actions by changing one's opinions and beliefs to make what one has done seem right. What could make living in an all-white town right? The old idea that African Americans constitute the problem, of course. In 1914, Thomas Bailey, a professor in Mississippi, told what's wrong with that line of thinking. The real problem is not the Negro, but the white man's attitude toward the Negro. Sundown towns only made white attitudes worse. Having driven out, or kept out, African Americans, or perhaps Chinese Americans, or Jewish Americans, their residents then became more racist and more likely to believe the worst about the excluded groups. That's why the talk in sundown towns brims with amazing stereotypes about African Americans, put forth confidently as reality by European Americans who've never had an honest conversation with an African American in their lives. The ideology intrinsic to sundown towns that African Americans, or Jews, Chinese Americans, or another group, are the problem, prompts their residents to believe and pass on all kinds of negative generalizations as fact. They're the problem because they choose segregation, even though they don't, as we've seen. Or they're the problem owing to their criminality, confirmed by the stereotype misbehavior that we avoid by excluding or moving away from them. Of course, such stereotypes are hardly limited to sundown towns. Summarizing a nationwide 1991 poll, Lynn Duke found that a majority of whites believe that blacks and Hispanics are likely to prefer welfare to hard work, 
and tend to be lazier than whites, more prone to violence, less intelligent, and less patriotic. Even worse, in sundown towns and suburbs, statements such as these usually evoke no open disagreement at all, because most listeners in sundown towns have never lived near African Americans, they have no experiential foundation from which to question the negative generalities they hear voiced. So the stereotypes usually go unchallenged. Blacks are less intelligent, lazier, and lack drive, and that's why they haven't built successful careers. Actually, most African Americans, like most other Americans, are reasonably industrious people who are quietly trying to have a satisfying life and pass on a bit of a start to their children. But many residents of sundown towns and suburbs simply don't believe that. Many also misunderstand basic economics and believe, for example, that African Americans don't pay property taxes when they rent rather than own their homes not understanding that landlords pay property taxes from the rents they collect. Nor do most whites realize that Social Security acts as a vast transfer program from blacks to whites, because African Americans' life expectancy is so much shorter than that of whites. Negative generalizations about African Americans are at least as common in sundown suburbs as in independent sundown towns, even though residents of sundown suburbs may have African-American friends at work. In a corollary to the file-folder mentality Chapter 10 described, such individuals are accepted as exceptions leaving the negative generalizations about the mass of African Americans unscathed. Many residents of these suburbs, especially working and middle-class suburbs, have fled from city neighborhoods that they believed were about to turn black. Those who flee such neighborhoods carry white-flight stories with them like a pestilence. Parents think they did the right thing by fleeing the city and its crime and problems, problems they see as inextricably bound up with race. When their children ask them why they moved, they respond with the negative stereotypes, thus passing them on to the next generation. Contact with a nice black co-worker makes no difference. A 1985 study of white voters in Michigan found that residents of blue-collar sundown suburbs of Detroit expressed a profound distaste for blacks, a sentiment that pervades almost everything they think about government and politics. Many also scapegoated African Americans. Blacks constitute the explanation for their vulnerability and for almost everything that's gone wrong in their lives. Not being black is what constitutes being middle class. Not living with blacks is what makes a neighborhood a decent place to live. A librarian in Oak Lawn, a sundown suburb southwest of Chicago, remarked that Oak Lawn residents welcome Hispanics because they don't know what they'll bring with them. Many know what blacks will bring with them. 
Many suburbanites left neighborhoods in Chicago when African Americans moved in, she explained, and those areas are now black. They don't want to have to do that again. Therefore, they don't let African Americans in. I asked her, what would blacks bring with them? Crime, she replied immediately. That answers a textbook example of prejudgment and overgeneralization. In a word, prejudice, from a woman who denied any racial animus herself. We were then joined by a male reference librarian. Ironically, both complained about the Colombian gangs that now operated in Oak Lawn. Whether African-American newcomers would have formed gangs, we'll never know. But the fact remains that neither librarian saw any contradiction in justifying excluding African-Americans owing to crime while admitting Hispanics despite crime. Since Oak Lawn didn't keep out Hispanics, cognitive dissonance didn't move them to focus on Hispanic crime. It's black crime that really concerned them. At the top end of the status spectrum, residents of Gross Point, Michigan, reacted identically, blocking African Americans while mounting no protest when members of the Mafia booted out of Canada for criminal behavior, moved in. Whites often engage in white flight despite evidence right before their eyes that their rationale for leaving makes no sense. Matson, Illinois, an upper-middle-class suburb south of Chicago, went from 12% black in 1980 to nearly 60% black by 2000. The blacks moving in are professionals, according to Leonard Steinhorn, co-author of By the Color of Our Skin. As a result, the town's median income rose by 73% in the 1980s. Crime hasn't increased, schools have maintained the same standards, and home prices continue to rise. If anything, the community's wealthier with its new black residents. Nevertheless, Matson's whites continue to leave, saying that they simply want a nice place to raise their kids. As Frederick Douglass put it back in 1860, such behavior is characteristic of prejudice, always blind to what it never wishes to see and quick to perceive all it wishes. Imagining the Black Menace Sometimes the stereotypes whites form about African Americans create real apprehension in sundown towns. Most residents of these towns see communities outside their city limits as much blacker than they are, which frightens them. Cobden is half black a local history buff in Dongola, Illinois, a sundown town 12 miles south of Cobden, said in 2003, Actually, Cobden has 16 African Americans among 1,116 residents, or 1.4%. 1 
the high school secretary of a sundown town in northeastern Arkansas, told me that Oxford, Mississippi, is majority black, and she worried about it while there. Actually, Oxford has 2,463 African Americans among 11,654 residents, about 20%. We're thinking of going to the Arkansas State Fair this year, she also said. And a friend told us to take a pistol. It's in a black neighborhood. I told her I'd been to the fairgrounds in Little Rock and never heard of folks having to shoot their way in or out. She didn't laugh. She was considering her friend's advice quite seriously. In 1994, anthropologist Jane Adams found that a peculiar anxiety gripped residents of Anna in southern Illinois about nearby Carbondale, long after student riots at Southern Illinois University and a Black Panther shootout with police there in 1970. Many people in the area still avoid Carbondale and are afraid to go through the town at night. This fear had no rational basis. Student rioters and Black Panthers are long gone, and the campus has been quiet for decades. The fear is partly racial, for African Americans aren't gone. Carbondale, in 1994, was 20% black, which looks very black from the vantage point of all-white Anna. Thus, where one lives affects how one perceives. When dealing with towns that actually have black majorities, fears in sundown towns can become absurd enough to merit the label paranoia. When Westside High School in Greer's Ferry, Arkansas, a sundown town according to a nearby resident, plays Cotton Plant, a majority black high school to the southeast, the team and buses get escorted by state troopers. When Westside hosts Cotton Plant, according to a recent Westside graduate, administrators warn their students not to leave jewelry or other valuables in your lockers. Leave them with your parents. Yet Cotton Plant players are surely already nervous playing in a sundown town and would hardly be likely to wander the halls of an unfamiliar high school scoping out student lockers. A former resident of Heron, a sundown town in southern Illinois, relates that Heron natives still warn each other, don't go to Culp, a nearby black-majority township, even during the daytime. Residents of independent sundown towns expressed particular anxiety about visiting Atlanta, Detroit, or Washington, D.C., three cities they know have black majorities. Not just small-town residents, but also some elite white suburbanites seem enfeebled rather than emboldened by their privileged, isolated communities, and wind up reluctant to go to cultural events or restaurants in central cities. A professor at Western Michigan University reported the reaction of her relatives from Naperville, 
an elite suburb southwest of Chicago, after going with her to a jewel supermarket in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Oh, how can you go there? Aren't you afraid of being mugged? The store's interracial clientele made them apprehensive. In broad daylight, in Kalamazoo. Imagine their fear of Chicago. Undergraduates at the University of Illinois, Chicago, tell that their friends from such suburbs as Naperville went to Iowa or the University of Illinois, Champaign. They're afraid of Chicago, and not just of those neighborhoods that are, in fact, dangerous. High school students from sundown suburbs of New York City are similarly wary of Manhattan. When we rode the subway, said Andy Cavalier about his Darien, Connecticut school friends, they'd ride wide-eyed, thinking they'd be mugged at any moment. Diane Hirschberger, taking high school students from suburban Johnson County to an art exhibit in Kansas City, overheard them saying in worried tones, I've never been downtown before. Young people absorb this posture toward the outside world from their parents and other adults in the community, of course. Carnes supplied an example. My recent Cleveland trip was interesting in that it was two swimmers and their fathers. One father was pretty uncomfortable in general. He made several comments about Cleveland being dangerous because of its racial makeup. We were looking for a reasonably priced place to eat, and it took a while. At one stop, he said, maybe we should find an area with some more white faces, attached to some comment about safety. I was surprised, because this is one of the gentlest, most accepting men I know, and he allowed himself to fall prey to that kind of thinking. I pass this on not to belittle him, but because I think it illustrates the kind of thinking that's created in small, all-white communities. Residents of sundown towns have long feared black-majority towns. According to historian Norman Crockett, author of The Black Towns, citizens of Payden and Okima, sundown towns in eastern Oklahoma, worried they were in danger while in Boley, a neighboring Blacktown. This anxiety escalated to full-blown panic one warm June night in 1911. A month before, a white mob from Okima had hanged Laura Nelson and her son, African-American farmers living near Boley, from the steel bridge that spanned the North Canadian River. As customary in such matters, the grand jury investigating the lynchings somehow couldn't determine who was responsible. Now, in the words of Okima resident W.L. Payne, townspeople watched movements of the lawless Negro element, fearing retaliation from Boley. On June 23rd, according to Payne, a white stool pigeon informed the sheriff of Ofusky County that the Negroes were planning to sack and burn Okima that night. No mercy was to be shown women and children. Terror and confusion reigned within Okima. Payne tells what happened next. 
Citizens came from every section of the town with firearms. Ammunition dealers soon sold their entire stock of firearms and ammunition. An armed cordon of men was placed around Okima at the edge of town, and all approaches were guarded. Strategic locations within the city limits were soon fortified. Mobilization officers ordered all streetlights cut off to prevent the enemy from observing the movements of the town's brave defenders. The light plant engineer was to signal the attack by blowing the whistle. As both young and old scrambled for safety, mothers and children often became separated in the mad rush for safety. Hysterical mothers were screaming for their children and pleading for assistance. The alarm lasted all night. But in the end, Payne concludes, while Okima citizens were preparing for war, their colored foes were at home preparing for a good night's rest, which prevented the loss of blood on both sides. But Payne doesn't draw the obvious lesson that white fears were silly. Sixty years later, a similar rumor prompted a similar vigil in Anna, Illinois. Most of the store owners spent the night in their stores with their guns loaded, according to a woman who grew up there. African Americans in Carroll, thirty miles to the south, were boycotting its stores, and a rumor flew around Anna one weekend that the blacks—by the way, no one called them blacks, they were always referred to as niggers—were going to come up to Anna and cause trouble. All that happened was that a few blacks came into town to shop, which wasn't uncommon, and they went home as usual. Perhaps a bad conscience of sorts, Freud would call it projection, helped motivate the Okima panic. Similarly, after whites in Maryville, Missouri, lynched Raymond Gunn in 1931 and threatened the rest of Maryville's small black community, a rumor swept through town that 2,000 African Americans from Kansas City, almost 100 miles south, augmented by reinforcements from Omaha, Nebraska, almost 100 miles northwest, were coming to invade Maryville to avenge the lynching. According to a white minister, every white man in town was armed and on the streets. We were sure we were going to have to protect ourselves in blood. The sheriff deputized numerous men to help with the defense. The streets were crowded all night. The sheriff sought help from other counties, and plans were made to block the oncoming Nebraska horde at the Missouri River Bridge. Of course, no attack ever materialized. Over the years, when African Americans have rioted, even if they're miles away, white paranoia in sundown towns has often reached a fever pitch. Carnes grew up in Huntington, former Vice President Dan Quayle's hometown, a sundown town in northern Indiana. My father owned a sporting goods store, and among other things, he sold guns. During the race riots of the 60s, particularly following King's assassination, he'd get phone calls warning him of black motorcycle gangs on their way to Huntington from Fort Wayne, 
to attack the all-white town as well as his business to steal the guns. No attack ever came, but it illustrates the paranoia. I remember two or three such incidents. Huntington is thirty miles from Fort Wayne, hardly a suburb. Glendale, California is a suburb of Los Angeles, but it lies about an hour's drive from Watts, according to a woman who attended high school in Glendale in the mid-1960s. One day, playing tennis after school, she was shocked to see what appeared to be an incredibly large contingent of National Reserve soldiers. There were tanks, tents, trucks, and a lot of soldiers. City officials of this sundown suburb had called out the National Guard to protect Glendale during the Watts riot from what they never specified. Officials of Gross Point, Grozeal, Dearborn, and other communities took similarly extraordinary precautions in their sundown suburbs during periods of racial unrest in Detroit. Having no African Americans in town, knowing none, having friends who also know no African Americans and live there partly so they cannot, these conditions foster a we-they mentality that can escalate to a sense of being besieged, even though no one's at the gates. Even in calm times, and notwithstanding their privilege, many residents of elite sundown suburbs seem to feel beleaguered. Cognitive Dissonance in Martinsville, Indiana Recent events in Martinsville, Indiana, provide an eerie example of cognitive dissonance at work. Martinsville's a city of 12,000, located 50 miles south of Indianapolis. In 1890, the town had 53 African Americans. By 1930, it had just four. Martinsville was a Ku Klux Klan hotbed in the 1920s, but so was most of Indiana. In the late 1950s, Martinsville High School played basketball against Crispus Attucks, Indianapolis's de jure segregated black high school, without incident. In 1967, however, when Martinsville played Rushville in football, and Rushville's star running back was African-American Larry Davis, Martinsville fans were yelling, Get that nigger! Then, on September 16, 1968, someone stabbed Carol Jenkins, a 21-year-old African-American from Rushville, to death with a screwdriver as she walked along Morgan Street, trying to sell encyclopedias door-to-door. It was her first evening in the city, so she knew no one. Thus, no one had any conceivable personal motive for killing her. At about 7.30 p.m., she'd gone to a house briefly, seeking refuge from a car with two white men in it who'd been shouting at her. So most people, correctly, assumed the motive to be rage at Jenkins as a black person for being in the city after dark. In the aftermath of the murder, 
NAACP leaders and reporters from outside the town levied criticism at the city's police department, alleging lack of interest in solving the crime. Martinsville residents responded by appearing to define the situation as us against them, them being outsiders and non-whites. The community seemed to close ranks behind the murderer and refused to turn him in, whoever he was. The town became a clam, said an Indianapolis newspaper reporter. Now Martinsville came to see itself not just as a sundown town, it already defined itself as that, but as a community that united in silence to protect the murderer of a black woman who'd innocently violated its sundown taboo. To justify this behavior required still more extreme racism, which in turn prompted additional racist behaviors, and thus festered further. During the years after Jenkins's murder, gas stations in Martinsville repeatedly refused to sell gasoline to African-American customers, at least as late as 1986. Not only the murder, but also actions such as these gave Martinsville a particularly scary reputation among African Americans. According to Professor Alan Bohm, who attended Indiana University in the 1970s, Indianapolis's large black middle-class population got the state to build a bypass around Martinsville because they didn't want their children put in harm's way when they drove between home and the university. In the 1990s, fans and students in Martinsville intensified their harassment of visiting athletic teams that had black players. In 1998, that tradition won Martinsville an article, Martinsville's Sad Season, in Sports Illustrated. On January 23rd, as Bloomington High North's racially mixed team got off the bus upon arriving for a game in Martinsville, about a dozen Martinsville students greeted the visitors with a barrage of racial epithets. Students shouted things like, here come the darkies. The Sports Illustrated account continues. During the junior varsity game, several Bloomington players were bitten by Martinsville players. During the varsity game, a member of Martinsville's all-white team elbowed a black North player in the stomach so fiercely that the player began vomiting. As he was doubled over on the sidelines, a fan yelled, that nigger's spitting on the floor. Get his ass off the floor. According to a report that Bloomington North filed with the Indiana High School Athletics Association, epithets like baboon and threats such as you're not safe in this town continued after the game, which Martinsville won 69-66. to 66. It wasn't just nasty, says one Bloomington North fan an adult who was in attendance, it was downright scary. Martinsville was sanctioned. It couldn't host a conference game in any sport for a year. 
This wasn't the first time that charges of racist behavior were leveled against one of Martinsville's teams, the story made clear. In the last year, at least two high schools in central Indiana have dropped the artesians from their schedules after games were marred by brawls and racial slurs. School administrators in Martinsville were unwilling to discuss the incident or its aftermath. Ironically, it turned out that no one from Martinsville murdered Carol Jenkins. On May 8, 2002, police arrested Kenneth Richmond, a 70-year-old who had never lived in Martinsville, based on the eyewitness account of his daughter, who sat in his car and watched while he did it when she was seven years old. Although many people inside as well as outside Martinsville believed its residents had been sheltering the murderer these 34 years, in fact, no one in the town had known who did it. No matter, cognitive dissonance kicked in anyway. Again, if situations are defined as real, they are real in their consequences. Because everyone thought the community had closed ranks in defense of the murderer, additional acts of racism in the aftermath seemed all the more appropriate. Today, having intensified its racism for more than three decades in defense of its imagined refusal to turn over the murderer, Martinsville is finding it hard to reverse course. Recently, some residents have tried to move the city toward better race relations, so far with mixed results. They organized meetings on race relations, hold an annual dinner, and hired a consultant to help Martinsville get beyond its past. At the same time, Martinsville's assistant police chief spoke out against gays, Hindus, and Buddhists after the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, and won a standing ovation at a subsequent city council meeting. And the Council of Conservative Citizens, descendant of the notorious White Citizens Council, has more members in Martinsville than the diversity organization. Context of white supremacy. We had Keith Beauchamp uh, as a guest on this program uh, twice. Uh, we discussed uh, his many documentary films. Uh, he did the untold story of Emmett Lewis Till uh, and other films as well dealing with racism, white supremacy. Uh, he also uh, did uh, a series called The Injustice Files, and they look at different cases. Most of them, I think it might be all of them, dealing with white supremacy racism. One of them, it has James Lowen featured, and they talk about sundown towns. They talk about this very case, uh, Carol Jenkins. And I believe uh, that uh, episode, they list this case as still being unsolved. And this is like recent. This is uh, very recent, uh, like within the last 10 years or so. Uh, that this report came out. And I, I mean, I remember watching this. We might have talked about it on the program. I have to go back and uh, check out his first visit. But um, I think this case was still unsolved uh, when, I'll double check, but Keith Beauchamp, uh, it's, the episode is, in fact, it's called Sundown Towns, 
the Martinsville Experiment. I'll post it so you can see the trailer. And I think this entire episode is online, so you can watch it. It's like uh, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, but you should definitely check it out. You can hear uh, Cal's guest uh, and, and you'll see James Lowen, suspected racist, and you'll get a lot more information about the Carol Jenkins case that we just heard about. The Injustice Files. That's what this series is called. And just look for the episode. You can just Injustice Files, Sundown Towns, and boop, you'll that'll be the episode. Uh, if you have commentary, the number 605-313-5164, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. If you did not get to share uh, once we concluded the first audio segment, get your hand up right now. Please don't wait till the last moment. Uh, go ahead and get a hand up uh, right now. That way we can hear your comments or questions. Uh, we should have ample time for everyone to participate. Uh, everyone with a hand up, line is open. Retired firefighter Red in Nevada, uh, Irie, Mr. Demry 4. Uh, I'm looking at the switchboard. I will nab other hands as I see them. May I be heard? Red in Nevada. Hello, thank you for taking my call again. Um, a few of the notes that I took. The first one, well, I guess, um, actually, yeah, the first one was a reference to the subsection imagining the black menace. And the part where it's speaking about how basically these black um, children are having to go to the sundown towns and play some type of sporting event, I'm assuming for mostly a white audience. Uh, but I thought it was very interesting how there was a majority black high school named Cotton Plant. I've never heard of anything like that. And it's... Um, is it in Ar oh, it's in Arkansas? Does it also reference the all-white school, which was West Side? So I, I definitely thought that that was interesting. Uh, the other note, and it's uh, speaking about, again, this Kearns individual, the same teacher, I'm assuming. Uh, it's like the, the quote... Uh, when it says, um, starts off my recent Cleveland trip, if anyone actually has the, the book or the ebook, but he speaks about a white woman who is talking about a, a, sorry, it's not a white woman. I don't know where I got that from, but he's speaking about uh, a white man when they're looking for a restaurant in Cleveland and it's too black or what have you. And um, the black, and the white man says he wants to find more, um, white faces and it said the sentence was I was surprised because this is one of the gentlest most accepting men I know and he allowed himself to fall prey to that kind of thinking and I just thought that that was once again a, a illustration at least with this Kearns individual um, as how he is practicing racism 
and just the fact that how people they like to or uh, one of the means that I've seen of how they practice racism is that definitely not indicting another white person, but no one fell prey to it. This is something that he always had in his mind. And for him to still be the gentlest person or the most accepting person, well, if he's in an all-white town, he's not really the most accepting person. All he has to accept is people who look like him, other suspected racists. So that part didn't even make any sense. I actually had to also look up... Uh, Laura Nelson. Um, I didn't know who, I've, I've never heard of that. Um, so I just looked up uh, Laura Nelson when he's speaking, when the author spoke about her and her son, um, how they were uh, lynched by these white terrorists. And since he didn't actually put it in the book about why these white people lynched them, um, I looked up and apparently the son who was 14 at the time or around 14, if I'm not mistaken, from the article in uh, Wikipedia, they were accu they accused the son of shooting to death a sheriff who had organized a posse to try to find a stolen cow um, that they were searching the their their farm for, and the reason why the son and the and the this the the mother lynch is because the mother had apparently they said grabbed the gun before the son shot him and then the husband he pleaded to he pleaded guilty and he was able to um go to a nearby county or city what have you but i just thought that that was just once again i would feel like that would be more along the lines of a myth uh just to um, and it seems like the whole stolen, always somebody is stealing some, something, someone's raping someone, um, that whole lie. Then also the, the Carol Jenkins, I've never heard of that story either. Um, but I also feel like the, in, the people, the, her employer, the encyclopedia um, manufacturer, whomever, I feel like they had to have known, uh, I, I can only assume that they were white, but I wouldn't be surprised if they had known that they were sending her into this um, highly racist territory and with, with no care for her safety. Um, and it made me think about just um, some of the things that I've seen out here um, in Las Vegas, where I see like black people in kind of like areas that I would consider more white um, and having to do like, it's like salespeople jobs and I'm like why would they you know have to be stationed there when I'm a, I wouldn't be surprised if they had other white people who would do much better in that area um, as far as selling whatever he also used in that same um, that same part about Carol Jenkins uh, there was a sentence saying that the town had became a clam um, but that was actually a quote from an Indian I'm sorry an Indi I'm sorry an Indianapolis newspaper reporter um, I, I've never heard of a town being referenced as a clam as far as them hot, possibly hiding the secret of who killed uh, the, the black female. But then when he later on references the daughter finally came, um, came forward, I guess, and told possibly if I don't know if the case is still open or not, but 34 years she held this secret. I think that she's also a racist and also is a um, and it is an example of uh, whites practicing the no snitch policy because if she really, if this, if her dad really did this, 
Um, and so she allowed him to at least get to 70 before she even said anything. I think that that's disgusting. I don't think that, um, I, I would definitely hope if she, if this was actually true, um, that no one will be praising a, a racist like her. Uh, there was also a part, a delectable Negro part, and I'll make this my last comment, when it referenced the basketball game in the 1990s in Martinsville, and it says uh, in, from the, the Sports Illustrated article, uh, during the junior varsity game, several Bloomington players were bitten by Martinsville players. And I'm like, again, if you black people are so disgusting, you got to hold your breath around them, this, that, and the other then why bite them? Why rape them? Why do any of this? Uh, so I'll, I'll meet my line. Thank you. Much obliged. Uh, Red in Nevada, other folks who dialed in, if you have commentary uh, to share, proceed. Did any other uh, folks uh, have commentary from the second section? Yes, ma'am, be heard. Yes, sir. <clears throat> yes, I just have a couple of comments. Uh, when he made, he was talking to a friend, I guess, and he made the comment in com comparing Kalamazoo to Chicago. And I think that could have been an act of racism because the only thing you can deduct from that is that the amount of black people. And so, uh, like you say, just keep it plain. I mean, just, uh, you know, go ahead and tell the truth and, and tell it like it is. Don't uh, be pussyfooting around. Uh, that story about Carol uh, Jenkins, um, one version of that story tells about a benevolent white woman that actually took Miss Jenkins inside her house and let her stay the night. And Miss Jenkins refused to stay. And so the white lady allowed her to leave, and that's when they murdered her. And so there's a lot of mystery around the, this case, and uh, I hope they do get to the bottom of it. Like you said, I think that it's probably uh, still open. And then uh, the last thing, uh, what he was saying is, I think the last, I don't have a book, but he said that, that this particular city had more members than, I don't know if it was the KKK or some white supremacist organization than they had inside a diversity group. Uh, if you could clear that up for me. But I'll mute my line on that, guys. Thanks for taking the call. Indeed. Uh, let's see. Any other uh, folks have commentary on the second audio segment? I will get to, actually, I will not get to my notes. I am going to read 
from the Wikipedia page on Carol Jenkins. Full disclosure, now this is the Wikipedia page. I'm reading this for the first time with you all. I have seen Mr. Beauchamp's uh, Injustice Files segment, which is about 45 minutes. I've seen it, but it was years ago, and I didn't, I was totally unaware that that was going to be in this week's uh, section of the reading. I just tweeted it at Until Justice. Uh, the video, it's on YouTube. You can see the whole segment. I'm going to watch it again uh, before we get to next week's uh, segment. Uh, but James Lowen's there, and they talk a lot about Sundown Towns. Man, oh, my goodness. I rem- They go to uh, Martinsville, the area where uh, Miss Jenkins was killed. They go there, and white children, my goodness, Mr. Beauchamp is there. These white children looked at him like, what in the, what, is this, we got a real life coon here. I mean, it was for that alone. The information on Miss Jenkins' death, absolutely, you should pay attention to it. <sighs> Carol Jenkins, know who she is, what happened to her, extremely important. I'm so glad that they did that. However, it is substantially important when you get to the end Pay attention to how those white children are looking at Mr. Beauchamp. He gives lots of detail about how he's treated. They still don't have a lot of Negras and, you know, all of that. I think Mr. Lowen is riding through the car with him and they're talking. They're talking. I can't believe I've forgotten all about that. I don't, we should have read this book back then, maybe. Anyway, this is the Wikipedia page. So Miss Jenkins stopped at the Neal residence. These are white, uh, white man and a white woman, suspected racists. So I'm just picking it up from where she stops there. Uh, Norma Neal, white woman, walked several blocks with Carol looking for her co-workers. When they couldn't find them, Neal offered to let Carol stay at their residence, but Carol turned down their offer, saying she didn't want to trouble them further. Around 8.30 p.m., Carol then walked off, heading to the predetermined rendezvous point where she was supposed to meet her co-workers to head back to Rushville. Now, that could be racism, too, if the white, if her co-workers were white. And they were supposed to meet with her. It's like, eh, whatever, that nigger. And they went about their business. That could be another act of racism. Maybe her co-workers were not white. I don't know. Again, just being reintroduced to this incident. Continuing approximately 15 to 30 minutes later, two men got out of their car and chased her down. Her arms were held back from behind one man while the other man stabbed her with a screwdriver in her heart. The man left her in the street where bleeding out from the wound, she died. Carol's father insisted that due to the racist past of Martinsville, the police bring in the FBI to help investigate, but the police refused. Davis would later say, I felt that because she was a black girl, nobody did anything. Continuing, in 2000, Carol's mother, Elizabeth, received... So this is in 1968, so this is a year before the militant black culture of 1969 to 1972. In 2000, June 2000, Carol's mother, Elizabeth, received an anonymous phone call from someone revealing the name of the killer. Elizabeth told Paul, who dipped into his retirement savings to hire a private investigator to look into it. After Indiana State Police got wind of Paul's effort, they assigned two cold case investigators to look back into the murder. And in November 2001, the investigators received an anonymous letter naming the killer Kenneth Clay Richmond. The letter also said that Richmond's daughter, Shirley, had witnessed the murder. For more than 33 years, the murder of Jenkins remained unsolved. But on May 8, 2002, police arrested Kenneth C. Richmond in Indianapolis, in an Indianapolis nursing home. Upon his arrest, Richmond was found to be a 70-year-old career criminal with a history of bizarre behavior and affiliation with groups such as the Ku Klux Klan. 
At the time of the killing, Richmond lived on a nearby Hendricks County farm and was just passing through Martinsville on the night Jenkins was murdered. Richmond's estranged daughter of 24 years, Shirley, now 41, and married with the last name McQueen, corroborated the details of Carol's murder, including the clothing that Jenkins was wearing that night, which never had been revealed to the public. So detectives believed that the information given about the murder was accurate and that they had found one of the killers. The police realized that they would not have found Shirley if it had not been for the anonymous phone call and letter. <clears throat> Both the call and the letter had been provided by 46-year-old Connie McQueen, Shirley McQueen's former sister-in-law. Shirley had confided in Connie about the murder, and Connie felt compelled to do something. That sounds a little different than what we got from the book, right? He says that the daughter finally snitched on him, and this is saying that the sister-in-law snitched, that his daughter told... Yeah, anyway... Shirley McQueen stated that Richmond, not that is important, not anyway. Shirley McQueen stated that Richmond had a pronounced dislike for black people, probably said niggers. Then she confirmed that as seven years old, she watched from the backseat of a car as her father and another man whom had been riding around drinking together. Who was the other guy? She should have ratted him out too. Killed Carol Jenkins. McQueen stated that when her father and the unknown assailant got back into the car, Richmond laughed and said of Jenkins, she got what she deserved. And as they drove away, McQueen looked back and saw Jenkins fall next to a bush. McQueen stated that as they drove back home, Richmond gave her $7, $1 for each year of her life to keep his daughter quiet about what she had witnessed. White children? Uh, Richmond never went to trial for Jenkins' murder, nor was his accomplice ever identified. He was declared incompetent to stand trial, and two weeks later, on August 31st, 2002, he died of bladder cancer. Following the murder, Don and Norma Neal received constant harassment and death threats after it was revealed that they tried to help Jenkins. That I remember from the Injustice Files. I think their residence was uh, vandalized repeatedly. Uh, in 2014, the Neals proposed a monument in Martinsville in Carroll's memory. However, the plans were scrapped after the county commissioner, Norman Voyles, said he started getting flack about it. I am, uh, I'm going to get the footnote for that one. One thing I do, if I read an article at Wikipedia, I do pay attention to make sure that they have the footnotes uh, for what they are talking about. And this one does seem to be footnoted where they decided that they were not going to make a monument to this Negro who was murdered in Martinsville. Watch the Injustice File on Carol Jenkins. White terrorism abounds. So my notes on this section... The previous audio segment, he said that the bell curve is especially popular in sundown towns. I think the bell curve was popular. I mean, it wasn't even just popular in this part of the world. It was popular with whites all over the world uh, who thought that that book was wonderful and accurately uh, described Negras. We had a white man on the program in South Africa who quoted from the bell curve. He thought it was Bible. That's white supremacy worldwide. Uh, continuing. The Black Menace section. Isolation and ignorance. I'm suspicious anytime the word ignorance is used with white people and racism. I uh, just suspect that a white person is practicing racism. Um, believing stereotypes. There it is again. Uh, 
he says white people and the same thing white people many also misunderstand basic economics why would the default be that white people don't understand economics as it relates to negras white people are the ones that have been in charge of the economics of black people dating back to the cotton fields why would black white people all of a sudden now there be an assumption that they are ignorant they're somehow confused about the economics of black people and or the economics of a system of white supremacy. That doesn't make logical sense to me. Uh, he continues that they don't understand basic economics and believe, for example, that African-Americans don't pay property taxes when they rent rather than own their homes. White people know this. They don't sell to niggas. He already said they have the covenants, right? I thought he just said that in the book that white people wrote the covenants. No selling to niggers. And sometimes they had no selling to spicks. Definitely no niggers, though. Put that in the covenant, he said. Sometimes they have it codified. They rioted, he said. If you try to sell to it, they know that we don't sell houses to niggers. Continues. This is all in the same chunk. He says not understanding, not understanding that landlords pay property taxes from the rents they collect. Really? They got whole. <laughs> the white racist is the slumlord. Really? They don't understand how all of this works. Come on, James Law. He continues. He says, nor do most whites realize that Social Security acts as a vast transfer program from blacks to whites because African-Americans life expectancy is so much shorter than that of whites. Really? White people don't know that niggers don't live as long in the system of white supremacy. They don't read the studies when they had those reports coming out beginning in 2014 with the uh, so-called uh, opioid uh, epidemic. Uh, and whites dying at younger ages, many of those report tacked on that, oh, yes, the life expectancy is dropping, but it's still way better than the Negras. Dying out at 66. Oh, yeah. Cornbread, crack, Kool-Aid. That's what they say. It's like 2004. Really? They don't know that Negras die? Really? Come on, James Lowen. Practicing racism, in my opinion, without and that's that's hefty. That's a hefty chunk of lie. And it's the same racist lies that white people are ignorant. That's the default. They just don't understand all this. Uh, 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 what is it? What is it? We just heard the white daughter. She said that her father expressed. Let's see. I want to make sure that I get the the what he said. It was distaste for black people. That was what the daughter said. Uh, 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 in the book, they said a 1985 study of white voters in Michigan found that the residents of the blue-collar sundown suburbs of Detroit expressed a profound distaste for black people. Even that word uh, distaste, delectable Negro. What he said, the killer of uh, Carol Jenkins, uh, his daughter Shirley McQueen stated that he had a pronounced dislike for black people. Apparently, that's an aspect of white culture, having profound distaste, dislike for black people that induces violent acts, encourages and finds it funny. He said, came back laughing. That's what she said. He came back laughing, killed her and came back to the car and thought, laughed, got what she deserved. That's white culture. And the people, I, I suspect because he was in Indianapolis, I suspect that these folks weren't strangers. I don't know who this other guy was. If they were out drinking together, they were probably drinking in the town. They probably did know uh, who this guy was or who the other guy was because it was two of them. They probably did know uh, some of the details and they just sat on it for, you know, however long. And I suspect that the in-law 
there was probably some sort of family conflict there. That was not, I feel bad and want to rat this out. I've seen uh, consistently where it'll be some sort of conflict. The person who ratted him out is racist too. I, even his daughter. Why did we wait so long? She didn't tell uh, anybody. Uh, Mr. Lowen didn't even give us the accurate information. It was the daughter-in-law who ratted him out. And then after she did, the daughter went ahead and confirmed uh, the information or what have you. But I mean, she should have, she could have done that years ago. I think anybody here, eight years old, you witness a murder, parent, family member, they kill somebody in the middle of the street and you think you're going to sit on that for a decade? Come on. Come on. A decade, 20, 30 years? She sat on it for a long time? Come on. Oh, uh, let's see. Uh, I thought it was a great... Uh, contrast when he talked about how in Gross Point, Michigan, they did not want, they rejected having black people, but they accepted uh, white mafia members from Canada who were kicked out for violent behavior, <laughs> that they it they will complain about crime, but it's really just niggers. It doesn't matter if they're criminal. We just don't like niggers, which, you, which should just be said. There's no need to make all these excuses. Uh, if you can have white mafia members and killers and gangsters of all sorts, they can come and be neighbors. No problems. I even was reminded Whitey Bulger uh, in Boston. He lived right there. People knew about him. It wasn't like he was hiding uh, or was unknown or was a hermit. He lived right there with those white people in Boston the whole time, and they all complained about niggers. We're not going to have any niggers in here. We got Whitey Bulger, killer, rat fink, all of the above, no problem. Niggers, get out of here. Next, uh, let's see. Oh, man. He mentioned uh, Bowley, Oklahoma, the whites in the, in the section Cognitive Dissonance. He said, Bowley, Oklahoma, they were scared of going there. That is the Negro element of Oklahoma. Man, oh, man. I read this part to Neely Fuller Jr. I said, do you know about Bowley, Oklahoma? He said, that's where my spouse was born. <laughs> that's why I said, you have got to. He has this book, Mr. Fuller. I cannot wait if he has an opportunity to flip through, to read, you know, even half of it, just to see, you know, the portions that he uh, that are about Oklahoma and all of the. That's what he said. He said, that's where my spouse is from. I said, wow, that her town, the whites think she and, and the rest of her clan are, are coming to, you know, terrorize them. We might have to do battle coming to burn the whole town down for the black people in Bowley, Oklahoma. Uh, I thought immediately of Dr. Francis Cress uh, Welsing white theory, uh, theory of white genetic annihilation, uh, that is not we are afraid uh, of Mr. Fuller's relatives in Bowley, Oklahoma or anywhere else. Uh, it is fear of white genetic annihilation, uh, melanin deficient individuals uh, on the planet. That's what it is. Uh, and then any excuse based on that theory, based on that fear, any excuse. Oh, yes, I was terrified. Oh, yes, they were coming to kill us. Oh, yes. Now we can go and kill black, which is what we've been joking about the whole time. That's what we enjoy doing anyway. Uh, and the fear part is so nonsense because they mentioned being afraid of D.C. D.C. isn't even majority black anymore. White people were so afraid they went in and successfully uh, purged niggers from D.C., which they've shown the ability to do whenever they want. Uh, I thought it was the time and energy resources that these all white teens, I think someone mentioned it uh, when the Little Rock Nine, when they were going in first day of school, did they get uh, state troopers and all that the first time before they got all the violence? Did they get all that? 
you got a white school going in to play a black school and they are get escorted by state troopers? Are you serious? Come on. Come on. Is Minister Farrakhan and Al Sharpton going to be out front just when they go to play? Come on. Come on. They, it's a matter of routine at these games for white students to be in monkey gear and yelling nigger and everything else. Do they do state trooper escorts for predominantly black schools going to play? Come on. Uh, let's see. The lawless Negro element. I love that phrasing. Uh, they said a white stool pigeon informed the sheriff of Oak Fusky County as Negroes were planning to sack and burn Okama that night. No mercy to was, was to be shown women and children. That is white uh, terrorism at its finest. Black children, black females, we don't care. It's just niggers. Uh, uh, I did have other notes. Carol Jenkins, we mentioned that. The clam metaphor I thought was important. Uh, 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 uh. Let's see. Delectable Negro. During the junior varsity game, several Bloomington players were bitten by Martinsville players. Really? At a high school sporting event, biting black players? Yes, I'm going to mark that as delectable Negro. Distasteful. Uh, and yelling at a high school athletic contest, you're not safe in this town. Like why? That seems like that should be an arrestable offense to have. So at minimum, you should be ejected. Like, how can you say that at a sporting contest? I'm asking rhetorically. I'll stop there. Uh, we'll have 30 seconds. Did anybody have a final comment that they needed to get in? Uh, let's see. Irene, Louisiana, did you have comment question? Yes, really quick. I had to disconnect and I just rejoined, but I I do recall him mentioning somebody, quote, fell prey to some racist tropes or ideology, you know, kind of uh, taking the blame away. Uh, the white person is the victim for his uh, racist thinking. No ownership. And yeah, that was all. Thank you. Good night, everyone. Much obliged. Uh, have a blessed evening. Uh, the minimizing and, and obfuscating, I think that's so dangerous. Anybody uh, who is suggesting that the problem is that white people are ignorant uh, and that that's, you know, why these things continue to happen. White people either being ignorant and or white people not having contact with black people. All of that is absolute rubbish. Uh, if that were the case, this problem would have been solved on the plantation. Whites would have had all the contact and diverse time that they needed. Oh, maybe we shouldn't mistreat the niggers. That's not what they did. We'll be here tomorrow for Workplace Racism, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, much obliged for the folks tuning in. Uh, we'll be back next week. We still got a ways to go for Sundown Towns. Uh, you can email your questions, comments. I didn't even get to read them today. I was so uh, intrigued with uh, going back to the Carol Jenkins uh, murder. Uh, but I posted that. I'm going to watch uh, that video segment. I would encourage folks to check that out as well if you want to die. It is kind of macabre, but it's important. We just read about it. You can see James Lowen. He's in the book. He talks uh, about the book uh, Sundown Towns. And you can see one of our former guests, uh, Mr. Beauchamp, uh, in the segment. Injustice Files, 
uh, Sundown Towns, the Martinsville Experiment. With that, uh, sobriety would be best under conditions of white terrorism. Uh, the conditions that brought about the terrorist murder of Miss Jenkins, they still exist, 2019. As such, it would be best if we're going to be out and about. Uh, let's have our wits so that we can think and do all that we can to try to keep ourselves as safe as possible under extremely dangerous conditions. In addition, <clears throat> let's be sober and let's be buckled up every time we are in a vehicle, passenger or driver. Uh, let's do all that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no let's be uh off the cell phones as well uh that's another thing that can attract unnecessary attention from racists creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately rest in peace carol jenkins context of white supremacy signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim no brother problem. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.